The Ford F-150 truck drives smart design forward. The standard 12-inch productivity screen helps you get what you need done too. And the available Pro-Access tailgate improves access to bed and cargo and utilization of the bed, including when towing a trailer. Together with a wider bumper step, it's easier to access the bed and load in tight spaces. An available Pro Power onboard serves as a mobile power source, providing up to 7.2 kilowatts of power to charge a bed full of electric dirt bikes or run an entire job site worth of tools. I'm still driving my 2016 F-150 truck and 90,000 miles in. As long as I keep it clean, it honestly still looks brand new. I've taken it down snow-covered forest service roads, taken it out camping, put a ton of miles on it on the freeway, had five adults in the cabin for long trips, and it's been great everywhere. Super dependable. I still love the way it looks, nice and rugged design, but with a super comfortable interior. And I'm still very happy with the quality sound system and heated seats. And since I bought my 2016 F-150 truck, the list of standard amenities that make a truck feel like a luxury vehicle have only grown. Tough this smart can only be called F-150. Find your local Ford dealer at Ford.com. Pro access tailgate available starting spring 2024. See owner's manual for important operating instructions. Justin and so good. Thousands of spring deals at your Nordstrom Rack Store. Save big today on new arrivals from Kate Spade, New York, Nike, Sam Edelman, Free People, and Madewell, starting at only $30. Great brands and great prices on dresses, denim, sandals, designer bags, and more. So rack your look and get first dibs on spring styles you want now from just $30 at your Nordstrom Rack Store. What will you find? Over 108 million people were killed in all the wars of the 20th century. 108 million. But the totality of those deaths pales in comparison to the total lives lost to infectious disease. Contagious viruses and bacteria tag-teamed to kill 1.68 billion people in the 20th century alone. Over 1.5 billion meat sacks in just 100 years. Only non-communicable diseases like heart disease and diabetes killed more people in the 20th century. And before the 20th century, nothing killed more meat sacks prematurely than infectious diseases, not even non-communicable diseases. Here's some statistical perspective on just how ruthless infectious diseases have been. The best estimate we have for the total number of humans killed in wars for the entirety of meat sack history is anywhere from 150 million to 1 billion. A lot of people but contagious diseases may have killed over a hundred times that many. While there's no way to prove this with certainty, some historians have estimated that malaria alone may have killed up to half of all of the people who have ever lived. Half of all meat sacks. Over the past 52,000 years, some disease historians have guesstimated that roughly 110 billion meat sacks have walked the earth which would mean that malaria alone may have killed roughly 55 billion people. Mortality experts are certain that nothing, nothing has come anywhere fucking close to killing more humans than infectious diseases. If there were a poster for public enemy number one for humanity overall, it wouldn't be a picture of a serial killer or a dictator or a weapon. It would be a virus. Historically, the Grim Reaper's favorite way to harvest souls has been infectious disease. As recently as 1900, infectious diseases such as pneumonia, influenza, tuberculosis, gastrointestinal infections, and diphtheria have caused 52.74% of all deaths in the United States. Infectious disease killing even more people than natural causes. And this percentage only grows higher the further you venture back in history. All 10 of the leading causes of death in 1850, infectious disease. But times have changed. 
Now, the top seven leading causes of death in the United States are heart disease, cancer, unintentional injuries, chronic lower respiratory diseases brought on by environmental factors such as personal vices, such as smoking cigarettes, stroke, Alzheimer's, and diabetes. The flu and pneumonia work together to chart out at number eight. Rounding out the top 10 are kidney disease and suicide. Is this because we suddenly have way more heart disease and cancer than we used to? Nope. It's because humanity finally figured out how to fight back against contagious disease with a powerful new weapon. The most important weapon in the most important death match in the history of humankind, the Q-tip. Q-tips have saved literally billions of lives since their 16th century debut by cleaning out the favorite place for lethal viruses and bacteria to enter the body, earwax. Get out of here. Q-tips haven't saved anyone. They've probably punctured an eardrum or two. Uh, The vaccine. The vaccine is arguably the most important invention of all time, right up there with antibiotics. Vaccines have been keeping humans alive ever since an English country doctor named Edward Jenner inoculated an eight-year-old boy named James Phipps with the cowpox virus in 1796. But now, 225 years later, there is a growing movement against arguably the single most important medical breakthrough in all of human history, and people are beginning to needlessly die all over again. And if the anti-vaccination movement continues to grow, these deaths will be just the beginning, just the tip of the death iceberg. Preventable pandemics will once more ravage the human population. And that's why this week I'm throwing out the most important episode of Time Suck thus far. If you don't believe in vaccinations, please just listen to this suck. Just listen. Listen in its entirety. I don't think you're stupid for being wary of doctors injecting needle after needle into yourself or into your kids. I really don't. I think your concern comes from a fantastic, responsible place. But after doing a ton of research, I also think it's very, very important for you to let this suck play to the end. If you doubt my info, check out the very thorough episode notes via the TimeSuck app or the TimeSuck website. Click the many, many links. Read more for yourself. Make sure I'm not bullshitting you. And if you still disagree, send in a message to Bojangles at TimeSuckPodcast.com. Just don't send in a message without links to your information and expect me to change my mind. Social media now provides the world with far more unreferenced opinions, unresearched opinions presented as fact than anyone has ever needed. And I blame that phenomenon for what seems to be a recent growth of paranoia concerning vaccinations. The anti-vaccination movement, its interesting association with autism, and the history of vaccinations and contagious disease passionately explored and explained today on For the Love of Nimrod. Please take this shit seriously edition of Time Suck. Yeah, yeah, yeah! This is Michael McDonald, and you're listening to Time Suck. You're listening to Time Suck. Happy Monday, Meat Sacks. I'm Dan Cummins, the Suck Master, the Master Sucker, the Nanner Peel Fucker. And you're listening to Time Suck. Hail to Nimrod, Lucifina, Bojangles, Triple M. Hail to you, you beautiful bastard. Back in the Suck Dungeon, Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, Reverend Dr. Joe Paisley, Mission Control, Queen of the Suck, Lindsay, wearing headphones at her desk. So, uh, you know, she can't hear me. Uh, Script keeper, Zach Flannery, daydreaming about cigarettes he stopped smoking a couple months ago. He's been doing amazing. Summer intern, Sophie Fax Sorceress Evans, just left the office. It's after her last day of her summer internship. I miss her already. We all will miss her. Uh, The team here are huge fans of this smart, funny, curious young meat sack. Get ready, world. She is going to fuck shit up in the best possible ways. Uh, donating $2,800 this month to the Impulse Youth Arts Organization, a drum and bugle corps based out of Buena Park, California. 
Their goal is to help kids learn not just how to play an instrument, but also uh, you know to get some teamwork, self-esteem, dedication to hard work. Hail to the Space Lizards for making that donation possible. Find out more, go to impulseyoutharts.org. Link in the episode description. Thanks to all the time suckers who came out in or, uh, to Orlando this past weekend, recording this ahead of those shows. Hoping they were great. I now know that the fans in Charlotte and Richmond are great. Saturday Night's Comedy Zone in Charlotte, uh, man, those shows were packed. Richmond was sold out. People stayed even though there was a, a little, little indoor rain problem. Heading to Hollywood next. Showbiz. Watch how I do it in Hollywood. Thursday, August 29th at the Comedy Store. Queen of the Suck, also going to be there. August 30th, 31st, September 1st at the other Comedy Store in La Jolla, California. Queen of the Suck at those shows just outside of San Diego as well. More dates coming up in Chicago. Keep forgetting Chicago, man. Chicago, Thalia Hall coming up fast. Phoenix, Indianapolis, West Palm Beach, Tampa, and more. Uh, Find those dates at dancummins.tv. Ticket links in the episode description. Uh, Be sure and check out the Time Suck University merch collection if you haven't already. School of Science and History, Criminology, Wackadooology. Selling like cold petsicles on a hot Mother's Day. Hoodies moving as well. Love seeing all the cool swag out there. Hail Axis Apparel. And now it's time. We went through that pretty fast. Now it's time to get into one of the most important topics we've covered on Time Suck so far, vaccinations. Let's address several anti-vaccination arguments. Hopefully put some of the fears that many well-intentioned caring parents have to rest about their kids receiving vaccinations, such as vaccinations leading to autism. The only diseases I don't want to be vaccinated against are anything Lucifina wants to give me. You know what I mean? Uh, I feel like anything uh, you know I'd catch would be worth it. Hail Lindsay! I mean, hail Lucifina! Funny how Lindsay and Lucifina sound pretty similar. Maybe a psychologist would have something to say about that. Coincidence? Let's get into it. Before we get into the deadliest time suck timeline yet, this may not be the serial killer suck, but holy shit, a lot of death in today's episode. Let's start by figuring out what a vaccine even is. Vaccines are brain-damaging mind-control elixirs first developed by the Rothschilds to collectively lower the IQ of humankind to make it easier for the Freemasons, the Knights Templars, and other Illuminati-run organizations to manipulate and control the Earth's poor, make vast amounts of wealth off the sweat of the working class, and then use that ill-gotten wealth to get away with the systematic and satanic molestation and sacrifice of great children. Ah! No. Forgot for a second there that I was uh, trying to present a factual podcast and not sending a direct message to Alex Jones or David Icke. What is a vaccine for real? Vaccine is a biological preparation that improves immunity to a particular disease. It typically contains an agent that resembles a disease-causing microorganism and is in fact often made from weakened or killed forms of that microbe, its toxins, or one of its surface proteins. This agent stimulates the body's immune system to recognize the agent as foreign, destroy it, then remember it so that the immune system can more easily recognize and destroy any of those microorganisms that it later encounters. Man, our bodies, it really is beyond amazing what they do and are capable of to try and keep us alive and well. Uh, Vaccines, when they work correctly, prepare your body to fight off a dangerous, potentially fatal invader by attacking you with a similar but much weaker foreign invader. It's like if you've never been in a fight, some tough guy was coming into your town like in a week to beat your ass. Probably going to get your ass beat. but if you prepare for the fight by beating up, uh, you know, like several kids a day for a whole week leading up to the tough guy match, kids who are you know, pretty tough, they're tough for kids, but also small and weak enough for you to confidently whoop, you might be able to handle yourself against a grown-ass man because now you have some battle experience. Yeah, 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 whoop those little fuckers, those little tough kid asses. Does that make sense? 
I feel like it didn't. It's probably very confusing and unnecessary. I think my initial definition was actually just fine. Uh, An effective, forget about the kid stuff. An effective vaccine can take your odds of catching a highly communicable disease in your area down from over 95%, like over a 95% chance of being infected uh, to down to like a two to 3% chance of being infected. Also, if you've been vaccinated and still get sick, it's highly unlikely you'll experience the full severity of the symptoms. Maybe get a bunch of gas, maybe some mild diarrhea instead of, you know, shitting yourself to death. That's a pretty cool additional benefit. Me personally, I don't love having gas, but I do like having gas more than I like shitting myself to death. But that's just me. Uh, part of what makes vaccines effective is a, is a concept called herd immunity. Herd immunity is all about beating the shit out of those kids. Packs or herds of unruly children. And forget about it. I'm, so, I'm done with the kids now, for real. Her, herd immunity occurs when so many people are vaccinated against a certain disease that the germs can't travel as easily from person to person and the entire community, the entire herd is less likely to get the disease. That is herd immunity. It means that even people in a group who don't get vaccinated will have some protection from getting sick because the disease won't spread to them. Right? If a person does get sick, there's less chance of an outbreak because it's harder for the disease to spread to more people. Makes sense. The more contagious a disease is, the higher percentage you need of vaccinated people for herd immunity to be effective. To achieve herd immunity uh, against measles, for example, 93 to 95% of the people in a community have to be vaccinated. To become an epidemic or pandemic, a disease needs to spread to a whole bunch of meat sacks. Herd immunity prevents that. Like if one person gets it, but then the virus can't effectively jump to anyone else in the immediate vicinity, that little virus dies. Even though technically viruses aren't even classified as alive to begin with, but tomato, tomato. I like to pretend that viruses are very alive and sentient and total assholes. They have names like Ned and Clifford and they have comb overs and wispy mustaches and greasy skin and and they're shifty eyed, little clammy palms. And these sketchy little virus assholes need a host organism cells to replicate or reproduce to stay alive. They can't live long outside their hosts. And if the virus can't find a new host once their host dies or once they get sneezed out onto the ground or whatever, then that microscopic asshole dies. So fuck you, dirty, tiny Ned. You and your sweaty, clammy virus palms. Uh, think of preventing viruses' ability to spread in terms of stopping a forest fire. This is this is a, my herd immunity analogy. The viruses are the fire. A town or city full of humans or the trees is the forest. And vaccines are the flame retardants that firefighters can spray down the trees with. And humans who haven't been vaccinated are trees. They're just fucking super dry, right? They haven't been sprayed. They are ready to light the fuck up like a Roman candle. Trees that get the, you know, uh, that fire to burn nice and hot and help it bounce out to other trees. Well, the higher percentage of trees that get sprayed down, trees that can't catch on fire, the harder it is for the fire to spread. That just makes sense. And the quicker the fire is going to burn out. Hail Nimrod. I like that analogy. I feel like I did a good job with that one. I feel like that was way better than the kids. I feel like I'm back up to even now on like analogy batting average. Uh, herd immunity, this is why the medical and scientific community, the overwhelming majority of people who possess a firm understanding of how vaccines work, get worked up and a little little angry about the anti-vaccination movement. Someone choosing not to vaccinate their children isn't just making a decision that could potentially affect their family. They're making a decision that could potentially affect the entire herd or community. If enough people in a population are not vaccinated, the disease starts to spread a lot quicker. Now infants, pregnant women, other individuals whose immune systems may be compromised due to some autoimmune disease or whatever, right? Maybe people who aren't eligible to receive vaccines for whatever reason, now they're also uh, you know, have much, much, much higher odds to being exposed to this disease, much higher odds to dying. You know, if enough people aren't immunized, the disease just perpetually also hovers around, keeps infecting people over and over again. And if since vaccinations don't prevent everyone who gets them from getting sick, if an epidemic breaks out, 
Some people who did get vaccinated will get sick and will die because the disease spread and made it to them because others did not get vaccinated. This is another reason many people, including myself, are worried about this issue. I don't want my kids dying as a direct result of a choice that you made for your kids. I think it's a fair concern. It feels very fair. Uh, A big question for many in the anti-vax world is if we've wiped out diseases through vaccinating enough of the population, doesn't that mean we can just stop getting immunized? Why are we still getting these, you know, vaccinations? It does mean that. We can get stopped. If it is, uh, or we can stop getting certain vaccinations. And we have, right? That's exactly what happened with smallpox. Routine vaccination for that disease in the U.S., it went away in 1972. The same year it was declared eradicated in the U.S. So we're not still getting vaccinations for diseases we don't have to worry about. The last known case of smallpox infected a human being uh, uh, in the world happened in 1977 in Somalia. And then the World Health Organization declared the disease globally eradicated in 1980. Uh, Quick, scary, random note on smallpox. The virus does still exist, but only in two laboratories that we know of. Samples of the virus are held in the Vector Lab in Siberia and also at the CDC, the Centers for Disease Control in Atlanta. Why? Well, it feels a little cold war to me. But also, it's, it's just uh, so if this disease were to pop up again, like if there was a bioterrorism attack, vaccines would need to be quickly distributed to prevent uh, possibly hundreds of millions of deaths. We'd still need to study this disease. That's why they theoretically keep these diseases in these places. Man, possibility of bioterrorism, another reason vaccines are so important. I mean, pretty scary that theoretically, if someone could get a hold of, let's say, those viruses in those labs, holy shit, they could wreak an ungodly amount of havoc on the world's population if there was no vaccinations. Another big question from the anti-vax side of the aisle is, why are U.S. doctors still recommending that babies be vaccinated for diseases no one gets in the United States like polio, which the CDC recommends you have your child vaccinated against between one and two months old? And here's the answer. CDC scientists hate your fucking baby. Wake up, sheeple! The CDC is employed by nothing but evil baby-hating lizard goblins. There is no vaccine against polio, sheeple! It's not real! They're pumping your baby full of Agenda 21 sterilization serum and MK Ultra mind control potions. Okay, pull your head out of Uncle Sam's ass. Wake up and smell the new world order. No, here's the real answer. Just because a disease has been eradicated in the U.S. like polio, that doesn't mean it's been eradicated in nations that people who either live in the U.S. or travel to and from the U.S. regularly, you know, like uh, uh, that it's eradicated everywhere. It's possible for travelers to bring the disease back home. And if the disease makes it to a home where there's no herd immunity, Well, then there's going to be a fucking virus forest fire, to use that analogy again. So hopefully that all makes sense. I got to be honest, it wasn't easy remembering what the dudes in the cloaks at the last Bohemian Grove child sacrifice satanic gathering meeting told me to make up and tell you idiots. Oh, shit. Hey, uh, Joe, could you you cut that part out, the part where I was just being honest for the first time about who I really am? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I don't want people to know what my real intentions are. Okay, now let's address what seems to be the main trigger word in the anti vaccination debate. Hangnails. Yep. We're going to go there. Right? I don't care. Fucking, you send in your messages. Send in your emails. Get pissed. I don't care. I'm going to talk about hangnails. Most people who are upset about vaccinations are upset because there's a lot of pseudoscience out there linking vaccinations to hangnails. And people understandably like, why should I inoculate my kid against the disease in my kiln? You know, if he catches it, when that inoculation is going to give my sweet baby Tim Tam pretty painful, irritating hangnail. And of course, that's nonsense. Autism. Autism is the main buzzword in the anti-vaccination debate. Autism has been linked to vaccinations time and time again uh, by various celebrities, most notably. Uh, the, the main one being Jenny McCarthy, kind of become the face of the anti-vax movement. Uh, Jenny McCarthy has an autistic son. Oh, Jenny. I used to have a poster of Jenny McCarthy on my college dorm room wall. 
Hail Lucifina. I once thought Jenny McCarthy was one of the most attractive women on this planet. Still think she's physically stunning, but not attractive to me at all anymore, truly. Uh, because of the words that come out of her mouth. Jenny's a former MTV game show host, model, actress, 1993 Playboy, Playmate of the Year, one time married to superstar actor Jim Carrey himself. Uh, he, he has also come out as anti-vax. In May of 2007, McCarthy announced that her son Evan was diagnosed with autism in 2005. She began working as a spokesperson for talk, for talk About Curing Autism in 2007. And her book, Louder Than Words, A Mother's Journey in Healing Autism, was published in September of that year. So, great intentions. Uh, concerned parent. I love that part about her. Uh, very concerned mother worried about her son. Also somebody who maybe isn't great at critical thinking. Maybe. Maybe uh, isn't great at, you know, looking at science versus pseudoscience. In 2008, she appeared on a Larry King Live special which was dedicated to the subject of vaccines and autism. She claimed that vaccines were responsible for her son's autism, which is unfortunate because she doesn't have any science to back up that claim because there isn't any. And we're going to get into that in depth later in this podcast. Uh, Jenny's saying that, uh, saying that and saying that other, uh, saying other anti-vax things over the years is really unfortunate because her stance has led to a lot of parents not vaccinating their kids. And that is why a lot of people really hate Jenny McCarthy. There's actually a website called JennyMcCarthyBodyCount.com. It's dedicated to how much blood the website host thinks is on Jenny's hands, and she is at least partially responsible for people dying of contagious diseases because they chose to not get vaccinated based on her promotion of anti-vaccination ideology. And I got to say, they're not wrong, in my opinion. Later in 2014, Jenny did say, I'm not anti-vaccine. I'm in this gray zone of, I think everyone should be aware and educate yourself and ask questions. Okay. And if your kid is having a problem, ask your doctor for an alternative way of doing the shots. Uh-huh. Nothing has ever linked a way of doing shots to autism. Uh, interesting to me how she asked others to educate themselves while in the same uh, uh, sentence, you know, promoting a, a fear of doctor administrator administered immunizations that has no basis in anything documented. Uh, Jenny also once said, if you ask, this, is, this one kills me. She said, if you ask a parent of an autistic child if they want the measles or autism, we will stand in line for the fucking measles. Fucking What? Jenny seems to have forgot that before the measles vaccine went on the market in 1963, hundreds of kids died from measles every year in the U.S. She also doesn't understand that uh, globally, it's still one of the leading causes of infant mortality. Weird that she would want to stand in line for something that for sure kills instead of standing in line for something that for sure does not. It's almost like she doesn't know what the fuck she's talking about. But here's another fun quote from Jenny McCarthy. If the vaccine companies are not listening to us, it's their fucking fault. The diseases are coming back. They're making a product that's shit. If you give us a safe vaccine, we'll use it. It shouldn't be polio versus autism. <sighs> it's not. It's not polio versus autism. There's literally no link between the two. Some studies did attempt to link the two, and I will go over the most off-sided anti-vax study soon and show how shady and terrible uh, that study was. McCarthy also claimed in 2008 that she cured her son of autism with the help of a gluten-free diet. So that should put a little kind of chink in the armor of her medical credibility. Uh, you know what, though? I mean, I guess to be fair, you know, maybe I, I can't argue it. I mean, to be fair, there's never been a formal study done regarding curing autism by taking away gluten. So in that sense, maybe, maybe it works. I mean, there's also never been a study re regarding curing autism by witchcraft. So maybe that works too. Uh, no one's tried curing autism by holding a large crystal in each hand and doing some yoga poses at the top of Mount Shasta. So maybe that works. Uh, no one's tried curing autism by eating a thousand Reese's pieces, Reese's pieces a day for two years in a row. So maybe that works. 
I about invented some new candy there. I was going to say like Rice's Pisces or something. Maybe slow roasting your genitals in Crock-Pot while screaming the word autism works. Autism! 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 Maybe that works. There's never been a study done on that exact thing. So, you know, there's a lot of studies that haven't been done regarding what could work. Maybe all the sarcasm I was just throwing out works. Uh, more and more politicians, mostly at the state legislature level, have also begun to publicly oppose any legislature that hints at mandatory vaccinations. Some of them have also expressed concern that various chemicals present in vaccinations are behind a recent rise in autism, uh, even though well, we'll address that too. No science behind that. Uh, Kentucky Governor Matt Bevin, prominent politician who is adamantly against mandatory vaccinations, arguing that would be an assault against personal freedom. And look, I'm a pro-freedom kind of guy. I enjoy it. I don't like being told what to do at all. Hate it, in fact, to the point that a zombie apocalypse uh, actually sounds kind of fun to me in moments. I mean, sure, getting eaten by zombies would suck, but having no government around, you know, and getting to shoot zombies in their zombie fucking heads, that sounds exciting and fun. However, in more rational moments, I, ra- I realize laws keep me and my family safe. I-, I rationally understand that freedom also has limits. And I think should your freedom allow you to endanger the lives of your neighbors and other kids at your children's schools. Like, here's the thing with the whole personal freedom infringement argument anti-vaxxers like to make concerning mandatory vaccinations. We're already not free to do whatever we want, not without possible legal consequences. As a parent, you're already not free to beat your kids within an inch of their lives. Might be fun to fantasize about sometimes, but it's also illegal. So why should you be free to carelessly risk the lives of other people's kids? If you you have a solid logical answer for that question, by the way, I'd love to hear it. But when you answer it, you have to acknowledge, if you want me to take it seriously, that we're already not free to do whatever we want. You're not free to let your kids drink alcohol or smoke cigarettes when they're 10 years old. The government already says you can't do that legally. You will get in trouble if we catch you doing that thing we told you not to do. So the whole slippery slope argument of, well, if we let the government tell us, you know, that we have to vaccinate our kids, that's just going to open the the gates to them telling us to do all kinds of other stuff and take away all kinds of freedoms. The gate's already fucking open. It's always been open. The government already regulates freedom. They already regulate parental rights. It's a nonsense argument. All right, let's address another concern of the anti-vaccination crowd. Is there a direct proven link between vaccinations and increased rates of autism over the last decades? No. In a word, no. And autism rates may not even be rising. More on that later. I have some interesting food for thought there. Uh, Two studies have been cited by those claiming that the MMR vaccine causes autism. Both studies are critically flawed. We'll discuss one of these studies, the most often cited one in depth soon. Before we do, let's first answer the question, what even is autism? Well, frankly, autism is tough to define. Uh, Loosely, it's a mental disorder. Uh, present from early childhood, which causes people to have considerable difficulties in socializing, communicating, and forming relationships. It affects people differently. It affects some people much, much more severely than others. How long has it been around? Uh, Autism did not show up until 1981. That year, five kids in the U.S. were diagnosed as having autism. Just four years later, uh, after a 500% rise in vaccinations, over 700,000 kids were diagnosed as autistic. By 1990, after several new vaccinations had been introduced, Roughly 10 million kids in the U.S. alone were labeled autistic. Now, that is some terrifying exponential acceleration and a startling correlation. I will admit that. By 2000, after seven more vaccinations hit the market, a preposterous 53 million Americans were autistic. And the most recent stats are the scariest of all. In 2016, 400 million Americans were diagnosed with autism, which is fucking crazy because the entire population of the U.S. was 323 million in 2016. And that's why people are worried. And I get that. I mean, you have to admit it's concerning that there's more people with autism 
than there, than there are even people alive right now. And obviously I'm being absurd, but that's how some people seem to portray a recent rise in autism. Uh, if there even is a rise, and again, I'll explain that shortly, the CDC estimates that one in 68 children in the U.S. currently have autism, uh, one in 42 boys, one in 189 girls. When did autism really first show up? We have absolutely no idea. We do know that autism was first used as a diagnostic term in a, in a very specific way. In 1943, Dr. Leo Kanner used the term to diagnose a social and emotional disorder. Previous observations of patients with symptoms of autism led psychiatrists to diagnosis, uh, or di- yeah, a diagnosis, God dang it, a diagnosis, there we go, of schizophrenia. And prior to that, people suffering from a variety of mental disorders were called things like feeble-minded or, you know, just like weird or whatever. You have to remember, when people talk about autism being a new phenomenon, that's not necessarily true because the diagnosing of psychiatric illnesses and the diagnosing of cognitive disabilities is a very new phenomenon. For all we know, autism has always been there. We just never had the term for it or the knowledge of how to correctly identify it until recently. I mean, we did a suck, you know, early on about, you know, early mental mental uh, health facilities where people could get thrown in for having differing political opinions. Like the study of mental illness and the study of cognitive disability is very, very new. Going back to my vague definition of autism for a moment, a big problem with diagnosing autism is that there are so many different kinds of it. Autism is, is complex. It's not even technically called autism anymore. It's autism spectrum disorder. Autism encompasses an entire spectrum of, uh, of disorders. It's really an umbrella term for someone suffering from you know, social communication difficulties, someone who uh, usually has unusually narrow interests, who usually displays strong, repetitive behavior. Sometimes someone with these symptoms has what is known as Asperger's syndrome, which does land along the autistic spectrum. The key difference between autism and Asperger's syndrome, uh, since I brought that up, is that in autism, a child will learn how to talk at a very late stage, often saying no words before the age of two. The child may have learning difficulties with a below average IQ, developmental delay. In contrast, in Asperger's syndrome, children will talk on time and have no learning difficulties, although they will uh, still find socializing very challenging and often be obsessed with narrow kind of topics of interest. I mean, do you see how difficult it must be to decide what causes something when that something is so tricky to even define? Something that expresses itself in so many different ways. I mean, autism is similar to cancer that way. What causes cancer? Well, depends on what kind of cancer you're talking about. There's a lot of different kinds of cancer. Cancer takes on different forms, some more debilitating than others. Similar with autism. Some people who are autistic will have great jobs, get married, raise kids, lead happy and productive lives. Others will need full-time care their whole lives and never be able to function independently. So what causes autism, we don't fucking know. That's the real answer. A lot of research is being done to find out. Research suggests that autism develops from a combination of genetic and non-genetic or environmental influences that can increase the risk a child will develop autism. However, increased risk is not the same as cause. Uh, For example, some gene changes associated with autism can also be found in people who don't have the disorder. Similarly, not everyone exposed to an environmental risk factor for autism will develop the disorder. In fact, most will not. Research tells us that autism tends to run in families. Changes in certain genes increase the risk that a child will develop autism. If a parent carries one or more of these gene changes, they may get passed to a child even if the parent does not have autism. Other times, these genetic changes uh, arise spontaneously in an early embryo or the sperm and or egg that combine to create the embryo. Again, the majority of these gene changes do not cause autism by themselves. They just increase risk for the disorder. Advanced parental age appears to be a factor in being born with autism. Having your first child when both you and your partner are over the age of 35 makes you three times as likely to have an autistic child than someone between uh, between the ages of 20 and 34. 
Also, having a second child less than a year after having the previous child increases the second child's risk of developing autism, maternal illness during pregnancy, extreme uh, prematurity, very low birth weight, certain difficulties during birth contribute, particularly those involving periods of oxygen deprivation to the baby's brain. These factors may contribute to autism. Mothers exposed to high levels of pesticides and air pollution may be at a higher risk of having a child with autism spectrum disorder. Small but growing body of research suggests that autism risk is less among children whose mothers took prenatal vitamins, specifically ones containing folic acid, in the months before and after conception. Mercury exposure, however, uh, while often linked to autism in the court of public opinion, has, has not been linked to autism in any properly conducted study. Basically, there's still a lot to be learned when it comes to understanding autism or autistic spectrum disorder. What science has determined so far, though, is that autism and vaccines do not appear to be related at all, at all. Think about how hard this link would be to prove. I mean, if you're not going to get vaccinated because you're worried that vaccinations cause autism because vaccinations put foreign substances like mercury and aluminum, you know, the harmful in large quantities into your body, then you should also stop breathing and eating. Breathing and eating. Put substances like mercury into your body. Fucking walking around on the earth. Put these substances in your body, you know? <laughs> so so what, see what I'm driving at? Even if mercury did cause autism, which it doesn't, vaccinations are, are not the place where we even get most of our mercury. Most of it just comes through just living our lives. Okay, now back, and I'll, I'll talk about that a little bit more too. Now back to exploring the supposed rise of autism. Are rates of autism increasing? This is a real fear among certain anti-vaxxers that a rise in autism has coincided directly with the rise in vaccines. Well, first off, right, correlation does not imply causation. Two things happening at the same time doesn't mean that one thing happening is affecting the other thing or causing the other thing to happen. For example, let's say you started doing more jumping jacks in late 2018, around the same time young American singer-songwriter uh, Billie Eilish started to become super famous. And as you started doing more and more jumping jacks each day, Billie Eilish became more and more famous. That doesn't mean that your jumping jacks caused Billie Eilish to become famous you delusional fucking maniac. Then there's a debate over whether or not autism is actually increasing at all. It might not be. Something is just being diagnosed more often. The numbers vary wildly from country to country, state to state regarding the possible rise in autism. Here's an example of, of what I'm talking about. The prevalence of autism increased in the state of California from 0.6 cases per 1,000 births in 1995 to 4.1 cases per 1,000 births in 2007. Or did it? This spike in cases occurred almost entirely in affluent areas. Less affluent areas did not see this jump. So were there more autistic kids being born or was there just a growing awareness of the disorder amongst doctors in affluent areas, which influenced the chances of a child receiving an autistic diagnosis? Some people think that changing diagnostics have led to a larger rise in autism and that the disorder is not becoming more prevalent. The American Psychiatric Association changed its diagnostic criteria for autism with the DSM-3 published in 1980. After the diagnostic criteria became more specific, autism was diagnosed much more frequently. People had a fucking word for it now, right? Or, you know, they had the word before, but now they have, you know, an easier way to identify what this word means. And as more doctors became familiar with the new criteria, the diagnosis became, of course, more prevalent. So again, when people point to a recent rise in autism, that might not be true. There may just be a rise in diagnosed autism. Do you see how complicated all of this is? And the more complicated it is, the harder it is going to be to prove a cause and effect relationship between autism and vaccines, or frankly, between autism and any other single cause. Now let's look at those studies I mentioned that did seem to prove a link between autism and vaccines. Studies that are frequently used as proof by the anti-vaccine crowd 
uh, you know, and, and proof that their arguments are backed up by science. The, the whole MMR vaccine controversy began with the publication of a research paper in 1998. The paper, written by a group led by Andrew Wakefield, was published in a respected British medical journal called The Lancet. The paper reported on 12 children with developmental disorders in the Royal Free Hospital in Hampstead in North London. The parents or physicians of eight of the children were said to have linked the behavioral symptoms with the MMR vaccination. The parents purportedly said that the symptoms of autism had set in within days of their children's vaccinations at 14 months old. Cue panic. Meanwhile, in America, a ferocious anti-vaccine movement took off after Wakefield toured U.S. autism conferences, including speaking at a 1998 conference uh, for Defeat Autism Now, and in November 2000, appeared on the CBS Network's 60 Minutes program, linking MMR with what he called, quote, an epidemic of autism. Cue massive panic. This one motherfucker single-handedly kicked off the current anti-vaccination, you know, scare or debate because vaccinations give kids autism kind of movement. Uh, then Jenny McCarthy and other celebrities took his faulty research, spread it to the masses. And well, here we are now. Here I am covering this topic. Why do I call Wakefield a motherfucker? Why do I say his research was faulty? Because I met him in a bar one time in 2002 in Issaquah, Washington. Now look at this. Check this out. I had quarters on the side of the pool table. So I, you know, I could play next. That's how you do it. And I was grabbing a beer and he just, he ignored him. He ignored the quarters and started racking up some balls, you know, like he was going to play. And I was like, hey, bro, my quarters, dude, on the side of the table. What the fuck? I had next. I had next, next. And he was like, oh, sorry. I didn't see him. I, I apologize. Go ahead and play. My bad. And you might think, what's wrong with that? You know, he did the right thing. He handled that well. No, he didn't. It was the way he said it that made the whole thing fucked up. It was like his tone. He was like, I'm going to play. Get him play. Get him play. And I swore to myself, one day I would slander that motherfucker on a podcast. That's crazy. That's not true. No, I don't like Wakefield because Wakefield was later caught up in a massive scandal that revealed he was conspiring with a lawyer named Richard Barr who hoped to raise a class action lawsuit against the drug companies that made the MMR vaccine. Barr hired Wakefield to conduct clinical scientific research that would support his class action suit. Unbelievable. Wakefield was a hired gun, you know, used to scientifically provide bullshit scientific findings to, to help win a bullshit lawsuit. This is why I don't like this guy. When all, when all this became public knowledge, the study Wakefield conducted was retracted from the Lancet and from July 2007 to May 2010, Wakefield was subjected to the longest ever professional misconduct hearing by the UK's General Medical Council, also proven that Wakefield manipulated the data in his 1998 paper linking the MMR vaccine to autism, right? This is this very unethical. May of 2010, Wakefield was found guilty by the General Medical Council of serious professional misconduct, banned from the medical register, meaning he can no longer practice medicine in the UK. Sadly, he can keep running his stupid fucking mouth and stoking anti-vax fires. This dangerous, false information quack piece of shit is now based in Austin, Texas. He's doubled down on the same anti-vax bullshit that cost him his medical license in the first place. 2017, Wakefield was directly linked to an outbreak of measles among the Somali-American community in Minnesota in which 79 people were infected, the vast majority of which were children under the age of 10. This came just after he visited and shared his views with them. The vaccination rate among that group in Minneapolis fell from 92% to 40%. He scared them that bad. The outbreak was the largest measles outbreak in Minnesota since 1990 when 460 people became ill and three people died. Wakefield, uh, Wakefield also been associated with a drop-off in vaccination rates in, in the area of Texas where he lives. 
All right, now that was a lot of info, but I felt like it was all necessary. We now know what a vaccine is, why we need them. We now addressed a lot of concerns of the anti-vaccination community. I mean, there's there's way too many to address all of them here. I know not all of them are, are linked with autism, but a lot of them are linked with autism. Uh, we'll address a few more concerns when I sum up this episode after today's timeline. We've also laid out how complex autism spectrum disorder is, how it's still not fully understood. Uh, yeah, I was actually just talking right before recording this about how Asperger's, as we mentioned, is not even tech, that, that's not even diagnosed anymore. That, that's just a recent change. It's still a commonly used term. It's all changing so fast. So very hard to figure out, you know, one single factor that is causing this thing we still don't really understand very well. Okay, now let's, let's really hammer home exactly why we need vaccinations. Death, so much infectious disease, death. Deaths we've only recently been able to fight back against using modern antibiotics, other medical treatments, and vaccinations. Once something's no longer a threat, we tend to forget about it. Meat sacks have short memories in a lot of ways, which is part of why history does repeat itself over and over. We have an anti-vax movement because vaccinations have been successful. Isn't that ironic? If vaccinations hadn't been invented, if they didn't work, there would be no opposition to them. There would just be, please God, figure out how to keep us all from constantly dying. Smallpox just wiped out half my fucking family. I don't want to lose the few relatives I have left. Please help us. That's how things used to be. Then doctors answered people's cries for help. And now doctors are being blamed for autism. In so many ways, we are a fucking crazy illogical species. Uh, let's fight against illogical behavior by going through some important numbers and dates. Let's remind ourselves why vaccines were created in the first place. Let's take a stroll through what life was like before vaccines. Uh, spoiler alert, it wasn't good. Uh, let's look at the history of infectious diseases fucking obliterating us time and time again in today's Time Suck timeline right after a word from today's sponsor. Today's Time Suck is brought to you by the Belgunnest Norwegian Massage Parlor or Norwegian Massage. It's a lot like a Swedish massage, except the masseuse goes uh, above and beyond just mas massaging you to create a soothing, relaxing, zen-like environment by constantly speaking in a, in a just calming, thick Norwegian accent. Oofta, oofta, hangy bangy, feeling the tension in your muscles. Oofta, keeping the pressure on your hamstrings and your buttocks and your backy-wacky, pushing the needle and tweaking the cheekies. Oofta. So, get that super relaxing massage. Use the code STRICTNINE to get a free happy ending. Legally, I can't define what a happy ending means. But if you choose it, you may hear, oofta, oofta, putting the thingy in the holsey wolsey Get a free two-hour massage with the free happy ending if you bring in $1,000 in cash to prove that you can pay for future massages. Also, you have to come alone with the cash to get that deal. And you can't show up in your own car. And, and you can't have anyone you know drop you off in their car. Uh, you can't notify anyone that you've ever heard of Bell Gunnis Norwegian Massage Parlor. You have to leave your phone at home when you go. You have to only bring cash. Do not drive your own vehicle. Do not take an Uber. Please only walk, preferably at night. Maybe kind of takes an alternate route. Take public transportation when you bring at least $1,000 in unmarked bills to claim your free massage. Oofta! You for sure won't get killed when you do that. And that, of course, is not today's sponsor. It was just a way for me to do a little voice I like and a silly nod to the bell gonna suck. Time Suck is brought to you today by Audible. Audible is where inspiring voices and compelling stories open listeners up to new experiences and ways of thinking. Audible delivers bestsellers, business, self-improvement, memoirs, and more, all professionally narrated by actors, authors, and motivational superstars like Rachel Hollis and Mel Robbins. And now as an Audible member, 
You'll get more than ever before. Get three titles every month, one audiobook plus two Audible originals that you can't hear anywhere else. You also get unlimited access to more than 100 audio-guided fitness programs plus free access to the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, and Washington Post. With their app, you can access Audible anytime on any device. It will always pick up where you left off. Audible also offers free and easy audiobook exchanges, credits that roll over for a year, and a library you keep forever, even if you cancel. I love Audible's vast library of titles. I know a lot of creative types listen to Time Suck. I highly recommend Big Magic, Creative Living Beyond Fear by Elizabeth Gilbert. Just over five hours of inspiration. I listened when I first started Time Suck, and it really put me in in a great headspace to create something for the love of creating and and not create something where money is is the main motivation. Put some magic into your art, give it a listen. Start listening with a 30-day Audible trial and get your first audiobook plus two Audible originals for free. Visit audible.com slash timesuck or text timesuck to 500-500-500-500. That's A-U-D-I-B-L-E dot com slash timesuck or text timesuck to 500-500. Now, Let's head into today's disease-riddled Time Suck timeline to explore not just some of the disease that wipes out a preposterous amount of measax, some of the diseases, but also explore the history of vaccinations. Strap on those boots, soldier. We're marching down a Time Suck timeline. The earliest recorded pandemic happened during the Peloponnesian War in 430. BCE, after the disease passed through Libya, Ethiopia, and Egypt, across the Athenian walls as the Spartans laid siege and up to two-thirds of the local population died. The symptoms included fever, thirst, bloody throat and tongue, red skin, and lesions. The disease, suspected to have been typhoid fever, weakened the Athenians significantly and was a significant factor in their defeat by the Spartans. Now there is a vaccine for typhoid fever, thank God. I have very little interest in having a bloody tongue. Or skin lesions. I don't enjoy them. I don't. If you do, whatever, that's your thing. Uh, The Antonine Plague in 165 CE was possibly an early appearance of smallpox that began with the Huns. The Huns then infected the Germans who passed it to the Romans. Then the returning troops spread it throughout the Roman Empire. Symptoms included fever, sore throat, diarrhea, and if the patient lived long enough, pus-filled sores. No me gusta! I like pus-filled sores even less than I like lesions. I don't care how many uh, pro-plus people that pisses off. This plague continued until about 180 CE, claiming Emperor Marcus Aurelius as one of its victims. Smallpox was later, as we learned earlier, successfully eradicated through vaccinations that led to effective herd immunity against this shitty disease. Damn you tiny assholes, Ned and Clifford. You and your wispy virus mustaches. Now we have, uh, named after the first known victim, the Christian Bishop of Carthage, the Cyprian Plague of 250 CE. It entailed diarrhea, vomiting, throat ulcers, fever, gangrenous hands and feet. What? No, thank you very much. That's when you're having a real humdinger of a week. When you have bleeding sores in your throat and a fever, and you're throwing up constantly, shitting yourself, and your hands and feet are rotting off of your body while you're still still alive. Listen, if my hands and feet start to rot off my body while I am still alive, I'm going to skip time suck for a week, right? I know that might sound like you don't have the right priorities, but if my hands start to rot off, I'm going to take a little break from doing this. You know, I'm going to take a little, little sick vacation due to a terrible case of the whoopsie daisies. 
The cause is thought to be either smallpox or the bubonic plague or this horrible affliction. There is now a vaccine for bubonic plague, just like there is for smallpox. First appearing in Egypt, the Justinian plague spread through Palestine and the Byzantine Empire in 541 CE, then throughout the Mediterranean. The plague changed the course of the empire, squelching Emperor Justinian's plans to bring the Roman Empire back together and causing massive economic struggle. People all across the empire reported the plague being a real bummer. It's also credited with creating an apocalyptic atmosphere that spurred the rapid spread of early Christianity. Uh, Recurrences over the plague the next two centuries eventually killed about 50 million people, 26% of the world's population at the time. The bubonic plague, that bad boy we did a whole suck on, was responsible for this monster. Around 1000 CE, the Chinese employed smallpox inoculation or variolation. Right, variolation as early as 1000 CE. It was practiced in Africa and Turkey as well before it spread to Europe and the Americas. Variolation was the deliberate inoculation of an uninfected person with the smallpox virus, usually via dried smallpox scabs being blown into the nose of an individual who then contracted a mild form of the disease. Upon recovery, the individual was immune to smallpox. Between 1% to 2% of those variolated died compared to 30% who died when they contracted the disease naturally. Man, the Chinese, way ahead of their time with medicine. Man, they invented the vaccine before it was called a vaccine. Got to do some China sucks. Got to do more Asian sucks. I don't know nearly enough about Asian history as I would like to. Uh, Though it had been around for ages, leprosy grew into a pandemic in Europe in the Middle Ages, resulting in the building of numerous leprosy-focused hospitals to accommodate the vast number of victims in the 11th century CE, a slow-developing bacterial disease that causes sores and deformities. Leprosy was believed to be a punishment from God. This belief led to victims being judged and ostracized. So that's super fun. Your skin's rotten off your body. Science hasn't evolved to the point where doctors can help you and everyone thinks you deserve it. Well, if you didn't want your nose to rot off your face, you shouldn't have coveted your neighbor's wife, Hazamakaya. Now known as Hansen's disease, leprosy still afflicts tens of thousands of people a year and can be fatal if treated with antibiotics. Most Americans who do catch leprosy now, it's very rare, catch it from armadillos. I shit you not. How weird is that? What? Jesse Dobner told me that. I thought he was fucking with me until I looked up and you know looked into it. Damn you, armadillo lepers. Curse you, armadillo lepers. Uh, a vaccine for leprosy is still being worked on since the disease is still killing meat sacks around the world. If you just aren't feeling enough, like you have enough sadness in your life right now, do a Google image search for Hansen disease victims. Holy shit. In all likelihood, uh, it will be way harder for you to feel sorry for yourself after seeing what these poor cursed people go through. Uh, I can picture them right now. They're like burned into my brain, these, these pictures. People with uh, parts of their faces literally rotted off. Fingers gone. Sometimes entire hands gone. Ears gone. Sometimes eyes rotted out. Still alive. Not trying to be callous when I say this, but some of these people who are somehow still alive, they look like zombies in The Walking Dead, but they have no makeup on. May Nimrod guide you scientists in killing those disgusting little leprosy bacteria motherfuckers causing so many people so much pain. Uh, Responsible for the death of one third of the world's population, a second appearance of the bubonic plague possibly starts in Asia and moves west in caravans in the mid 14th century. We now have a plague vaccine. Can you imagine if a disease killed a third of the world's population now, or even a quarter, or a fifth, even 10%, 10% would be 753 million people dead. That, that would be everyone who lives in the United States, Canada, Mexico, the UK, Sweden, Australia, New Zealand, Germany, France, Ireland combined, all dead. And if a disease killed the same percentage as the bubonic plague, Over three times that many dead. Infectious disease, man, the undisputed heavyweight champion of the death world. Now let's jump to the 15th century for, you know, more death. 
Following the arrival of the Spanish in the Caribbean in 1492, uh, Europeans passed along diseases such as smallpox, measles, and bubonic plague to native populations who had no natural resistance, and it decimated them. If only vaccines had existed for American Indians, the world map might look a lot differently today. Uh, this new disease killed up to 90%, up to 90% of the native population of the Americas. Ugh. I mean, if there was a written history, that written history would be far darker than even like the, the, the Black Death in Europe. There is now a vaccine for measles. The controversial MMR vaccine uh, is a vaccine for measles that we'll cover later in this timeline. In 1578, a whooping cough epidemic hits Paris. We now have a vaccine for the whooping cough. Before the whooping cough vaccine was recommended for all infants, about 8,000 you know, people in the United States died each year, mostly babies. So not fun. In 1613, diphtheria hit Spain. It was known as El Año de los Guerotillos, the year of the strangulations. What a fucking terrible year. How was, how was your year last year? Oh, not good. A lot of strangulations. Way more strangulations than I was hoping for going into the year. Uh, we don't have a reliable death toll for numbers for this epidemic, but with uh, much more recent numbers, the United States recorded 206,000 cases of diphtheria in 1921, over 15,000 dead. Before there was treatment for diphtheria, up to half the people who got the disease did die from it. There are now currently four different vaccines that treat diphtheria. Uh, in 1633, smallpox epidemic hits Massachusetts, affecting settlers and American Indians. Among the casualties were 20 settlers from the Mayflower, including their only physician. Think about how much that used to suck. When you had one doctor in your entire town or colony, <laughs> then an epidemic hits and the doctor dies. You can't go anywhere else. There's nobody else around. Now you have to rely on someone even less qualified than the guy whose main medical treatment involved whiskey, laudanum, shaw. Fuck life before urgent care. Go ahead. Go ahead and build a time machine. I'm not getting in it. I'm not getting in it. I'm not getting in it unless it's only set for the future. No, thank you. I'm heading back to the land of no convenient medical treatment. When Chinese Emperor Fu, uh, Fu Lin dies of smallpox in 1661, his third son becomes Emperor uh, Emperor Kaang. Ka, Ka uh, having already survived a case of smallpox before he became emperor, he eventually supported inoculation. And he wrote about it in a letter to his descendants, writing, The method of inoculation, having been brought to light during my reign, I had it used upon you, my sons and daughters, and my descendants. And you all passed through the smallpox in the happiest possible manner. In the beginning, when I had it tested on one or two people, some old women taxed me with extravagance and spoke very strongly against inoculation. The courage which I summoned up to insist on its practice has saved the lives and health of millions of men. This is an extremely important thing of which I am very proud. How fucking cool is that? 17th century emperor fighting anti-vaxxers in 1661 and saving lives and being aware of it. Man, the battle of opposing beliefs has been fought since long before the Jenny McCarthy era, or Jenny McCarthy era, which is not an era, thank God. Uh, that would be terrible if we lived during the Jenny McCarthy era. Uh, in its second recorded appearance in 1665, the bubonic plague leads to the deaths of 20% of London's population. As human death tolls mount and mass graves appear, hundreds of thousands of cats and dogs are slaughtered as the possible cause. What a terrible place and time to be alive. Roughly one in five die, and then everyone's pets are also slaughtered. I'd be, oh my God, I'd be hiding the shit out of Penny Pooper and Ginger Bell if local health officials were rounding up pets for slaughter. What is wrong with me even thinking? I've become so numb towards historical human death, yet the detail of hundreds of thousands of cats and dogs being slaughtered, it really bothers me. Save them, Bojangles. Get the people too, but only if there's time. First, first the pets, first the fur babies. In 1679, a French uh, court, uh, courtier describes the effects of smallpox on the Iroquois, terming it the Indian Plague. 
saying the smallpox desolates them to such a degree that they think no longer of meeting nor of wars, but only of bewailing the dead of whom there is already an immense number. So that's, that sounds terrible. Queen Mary II of England, age 32, dies in 1694 of variola hemorrhagica. Hemor, ah, fuck. I think I, did, I think I nailed it. I'm feeling proud of myself. Variola hemorrhagica. <laughs> did it! Uh, it's a terrible variation of smallpox in which bleeding occurs into the pustules as well as from other body surfaces and internally sounds a little Ebola-like. Don't like it. Possibly my worst nightmare when it comes to infectious diseases, just bleeding out from various parts of my body. No, thank you. Thomas Babington Macaulay would write about smallpox and Queen Mary II in the history of England from the accession, from the accession of James II, writing, the havoc of the plague had been far more rapid, but the plague had visited our shores only once or twice within living memory. And the smallpox was always present, filling the churchyard with corpses, tormenting with constant fears, all, all whom it had not yet stricken, leaving on those whose lives it spared the hideous traces of its power, turning the babe into a changeling at which the mother shuddered and making the eyes and cheeks of the betrothed maiden objects of horror to their lover. Toward the end of the year, 1694, this pestilence was more than usually severe. At length, the infection spread to the palace and reached the young and blooming queen. So yeah, it's just fucking killing lots of people, scarring the shit out of a lot of people. In 1699, Charleston and Philadelphia suffered the first confirmed yellow fever outbreaks in the American colonies. The death tolls in both cities were uh, terribly high. Life came to nearly a standstill. A Quaker in Philadelphia wrote, In this distemper had died six, seven, and sometimes eight in a day for several weeks, there being few houses, if any, free of the sickness. Great was the fear that fell on all flesh. He saw no lofty or airy countenances, nor heard at any vain jesting to move men to laughter. But every face gathered paleness and many hearts were humbled and countenances fallen and sunk as such that waited every moment to be summoned to the bar and numbered to the grave. Thank God we now have a vaccine against yellow fever. Cotton Mather, a Boston minister, received a gift in 1706 of a Libyan-born slave named Onesimus who bore a scar from smallpox variolation in Africa. Variolation. Um, Mather inquired amongst other slaves and found that many had been variolated and thought themselves immune to the disease. Man, first the Chinese, now the Africans. Europeans, Americans, a little slow to come to the vaccination table. Mather would promote the practice in Massachusetts. Sadly, Mather himself was too slow to adopt this early form of vaccinating. And in 1713, a measles epidemic broke out, killed his wife, his newborn twins, another daughter, and the family's maid within a few weeks. In 1718, Lady Mary Wortley Montague has her son variolated in Constantinople by Dr. Charles Maitland. Lady Montague, whose husband was ambassador to Turkey, had been disfigured by smallpox around 1715. She heard about variolation upon her arrival in Turkey and was anxious that her six-year-old son Edward had the procedure, and he did have the procedure and never contracted the disease himself. In 1717, she wrote to a friend, I'm going to tell you a thing that I am sure will make you wish yourself here. The smallpox, so fatal and so general amongst us, is here entirely harmless by the invention of ingrafting, which is the term they give it. There is a set of old women who make it their business to perform the operation every autumn. The old woman comes with a nutshell full of the matter of the best sort of smallpox and asks what veins you please to have opened. She immediately rips open that you offer her with a large needle and puts into the vein as much venom as can lie upon the head of her needle. Every year, thousands undergo this operation. There is no example of anyone that has died in it. And you may believe I am well satisfied of the safety of the experiment. I am patriot enough to take pains to bring this useful invention into fashion in England. And I should not fail to write 
to some of our doctors very particularly about it. I knew any one of them that I thought had virtue enough to destroy such a considerable branch of their revenue for the good of mankind. Lady Montague, early vaccination pioneer, early champion. And how cool is that? Those old ladies in Turkey. And they just like, they're basically just fucking vaccinating people. It's crazy, man. Way back when. Smallpox raged through Boston in 1721, ending in 844 deaths during this epidemic. Physician Zabdiel Boylston at Cotton Mather's urging, variolated 248 people, thereby introducing variolation to the Americas. Of those variolated, six died. The case fatality for variolation was about 3%. The disease case fatality was 14%. Much worse for the disease. About 900 people left town for fear of catching the disease. Mather was widely criticized for his role in promoting variolation, and a primitive grenade was thrown through a window of his house. The attached note threatened, Cotton Mather, you dog, damn you. I'll inoculate you with this, a pox to you. And that note was written by Mudflap McCarthy, great, 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 great grandfather of Jenny McCarthy. I don't know. If, I don't know who wrote the note. I do know that Zabdiel Boylston is the great uncle of second president John Adams, and he has quite the first name, Zabdiel. What's short for that? Zab? Zabby. Zabdog. Zabernator. It's not a name I heard tossed around a lot growing up in Idaho. Uh, Lady Mary Montague brings the practice of variolation to England in April of 1721, where she has Dr. Charles Maitland variolate her two-year-old daughter. Lady Montague would come under considerable criticism for advocating variolation, a practice that slowly began to spread as its ability to protect against smallpox became more certain, more apparent. The results, however, were sometimes fatal. Two to three percent of those variolated died of smallpox in in, uh, contrast to 20 to 30 percent in England who would die after contracting smallpox naturally. Despite early success against the pox, modern vaccinations would not hit the scene for a long, long time. 1732, a yellow fever epidemic struck Charleston, South Carolina, starting in May, running into the fall. Deaths occurred so frequently that the usual ringing of church bells upon a death was forbidden. That is crazy. So many people dying that they stopped ringing the bells. People were just like, enough with the bells. I get it. People are dead. I'm trying to sleep. You ring that death bell one more time, you're going to end up ringing it again because I'm going to kill myself. 1735, terrifying diphtheria epidemic swept through New England. Some cases, entire families died of the disease. In one New Hampshire town, 32% of all the children living there under the age of 10 died. Fuck. That would be the saddest town to live in for so many years after that. I mean, my, I mean even, if, even if your kids didn't die, imagine if a third of the kids in, your grade, in, the, in the grade school that your kids went to died. That grade school doesn't totally go back to normal until, you know, all of those classes, you know, have left the school entirely. The case fatality ratio was almost 40%. Noah Webster later wrote, it was literally the plague among children. Many families lost three or four children. Many lost all. Blah. Benjamin Franklin's four-year-old son, Francis Folger Franklin, dies of smallpox, November 21st, 1736. Rumors began to circulate, claiming the boy had been inoculated. Franklin published a denial, but also advocated inoculation. You know, saying like, no. That's not true, but wish I would have. He wrote, in 1736, I lost one of my sons, a fine boy of four years old. Man, that's so fucking sad. Taken by the smallpox in the the common way. I long regretted that I had not given it to him by inoculation, which I mentioned for the sake of parents who omit that operation on the supposition that they should never forgive themselves if a child died under it. My example showing that the regret may be same either way, and that therefore the safer should be chosen. How fucking wise is that? Do you, do you hear what he's saying? This, this could be, this is a common complaint amongst anti-vaxxers today. Well, okay, I even like some people, even if they get the whole herd immunity, they're like, well, I don't want to risk my kid right now. But what he's saying is like, yes, there is a little bit of a risk with vaccination. 
But it's a much greater risk mathematically if you don't get them vaccinated and you're going to regret it either way. So go with the the route, pick pick the path that has a statistical probability of being the best choice. Just logic, just logic. Ah, imagine choosing not to vaccinate your kid and then a contagious disease rips through your community and your kid gets sick and dies and you know, in no uncertain terms that your kid would still be alive if you would have vaccinated them. That, that's a risk I am never going to take. 1740, a German physician named Friedrich, Friedrich Hoffman was the first to give a clinical description of the disease that would later come to be known as rubella German measles. One dose of the MMR vaccine, the measles vaccine, is about 97% effective when it comes to preventing rubella. We should all be thankful that Edward Jenner was born in Berkeley on May 17th, 1749 in Gloucestershire, England. His role in the advancement of inoculation makes him perhaps one of the most important and most forgotten heroes of history, and he shares my birthday. So, you know, makes him extra cool for me. During Jenner's life, contagious diseases would continue to ravage the earth. In 1751, 3,538 die in London from smallpox. In 1757, Scottish physician Francis Home, MD, transmits measles from infected patients to healthy individuals via blood, demonstrating that the disease is caused by an infection, infectious agent. Super bummer for those early patients, important medical progress overall for disease treatment. In 1768, Catherine the Great of Russia is inoculated by physician Thomas Dimsdale with relays of horses at the ready in case the inoculation should go wrong and Dimsdale, uh, Dimsdale would need to escape. The operation was kept a secret. Catherine did recover successfully. The doctor didn't have to flee for his life. I hope that dude got paid well. That's a high pressure job. Imagine that pressure. You do your job or you get killed. Not fired, murdered. Catherine's successful inoculation would encourage others to follow suit. 1770, the badass Edward Jenner becomes interested in the idea that previous illness with a disease called cowpox could protect a person from later becoming ill with smallpox. He assumes the diseases must be related and he was right. Jenner's biographer claimed that Jenner heard this folk wisdom from a milkmaid. Having caught cowpox from a cow, she believed herself in her smooth skin safe from smallpox. Thank you, milkmaid. And thank you, internet. After hearing the term milkmaid, for whatever reason, don't judge me, I imagine the milkmaid being a sexy lady and I Google image search sexy milkmaid because it's 2019 and that's possible to do. And the internet <laughs> responded big time. What a weird time to be alive. No idea there was a milkmaid fetish out there and a lot of sexy milkmaid photo shoots. No idea that I have a milkmaid fetish. Be gone, Lucifina. Trying to do something important. Anyway, cowpox is an uncommon illness in cattle, usually mild. It can be spread from cow uh, to humans via sores on the cow. During an infection, dairy workers could catch it. We now know that cowpox virus, the virus belongs to the orthopox family of viruses. Orthopox viruses also include the horsepox virus, monkeypox virus, the variola virus, uh, which causes smallpox. Uh, it, it includes the, the dreaded banana pox virus caught by totally normal men who put their good boy clean weans into some infected nanner peels in a very normal, healthy way. And they end up swinging a pox peen around in their shorts for a few weeks. <sighs> All of that was true, except for the nana pox peen clean wean part. <laughs> 1774, Benjamin Jesty. An English farmer, cattle breeder, inoculates his wife and two sons with matter from a cowpox lesion on one of his cows. Jetsy, having already contracted cowpox, believed himself protected from smallpox. When a serious smallpox epidemic hits his Dorset village, he, from his, quote, great strength of mind, took it upon himself to protect his family. His wife and children survived, and the boys, when challenged with smallpox inoculation in 1789, showed no symptoms. Jesty, however, had no interest in systematically testing his methods or publishing his results, 
so his finding was largely forgotten. Upon his death, Jesse's wife had his tombstone inscribed with the first person known who introduced the cowpox inoculation. And then someone, someone else, maybe whose family died from smallpox, wrote some graffiti over that inscription saying, thanks for nothing, you fucking selfish asshole. Maybe that didn't happen. Maybe someone thought about writing that. Smallpox became a weapon of war in 1776. Of a force of 10,000 Continental Army soldiers in Quebec fighting on behalf of the American colonies, about 5,000 fell ill with smallpox. And uh, we think that's because the British sent over some people who were infected into the American ranks. No bueno. Kind of hard to win a battle if half your soldiers have either died from smallpox or are violently ill with it. The Continental Task Force Commander, Major General John Thomas, died of smallpox. His unit then retreated southward in May 1776. Arguably, this defeat preserved the status of the northern British colonies, permitting Canada to become a separate country that it is today. John Adams wrote, Our misfortunes in Canada are enough to melt the heart of stone. The smallpox is 10 times more terrible than the British, Canadians, and Indians together. This was the cause of our precipitate retreat from Quebec. Man, smallpox could have killed the American Revolution. And without it, Canada never may never have become part of the British Commonwealth. 1792, the Commonwealth of Virginia passed an act to consolidate previously passed acts regarding smallpox inoculation into one. This new, acts, new act included the penalty of $1,500. Jesus, that's stiff back. Or six months imprisonment for anyone willfully spreading the pox. Turns out legislation regulating how our citizens handle contagious diseases, nothing new. After 31 years of absence, yellow fever returns to Philadelphia in 1793, killing thousands over a span of several months. 1796, Edward Jenner's innovations began with his successful use of cowpox material to create immunity to smallpox. His method underwent medical and technological changes over the next 200 years, eventually resulted in the eradication of smallpox. Edward motherfucking hero Jenner. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Edward Jenner observed that milkmaids who had gotten cowpox, those sexy, sexy ass milkmaids wearing little sexy ass milkmaid bonnets, you know, with like luxurious braided hair and dressed in a way that would sometimes allow you to, to catch a glimpse of their sexy ass ankles, did not show any symptoms of smallpox after variolation. The first experiment to test this theory involved milkmaid Sarah Nelms and James Phipps, nine-year-old son of Jenner's gardener. Dr. Jenner took material from a cowpox sore on Nelms' hand, inoculated it into Phipps' arm. Months later, Jenner exposed Phipps a number of times to a variola virus, but Phipps never developed smallpox. Early, na- early vaccination victory. <laughs> what a risk. Man, Jesus Christ, this is just, uh, you know, could have killed the gardener's son, but he didn't. I guess that's good. The Royal Society rejected uh, Jenner's report of, uh, um, sorry, making sure, yeah, so many names there. Making sure, okay, it's Jenner, yeah. Uh, the Royal Society rejected Jenner's report of his achievements. So September 17th, 1798, Jenner self-published a pamphlet called An Inquiry into the Causes and Effects of Variola Vaccine, or Vaccine, a disease discovered in some of the Western counties of England, particularly Gloucestershire, and known by the name of the cowpox. Man, time and time again, we learn here on The Suck that book and article titles, pamphlet titles, used to be terrible. No publisher in their right mind would put that in a magazine or on a website today with that title. You know, some publisher, you want to call it what? You want to call it an inquiry into the causes and effects of the variole vaccine, a disease discovered in some of the Western counties of England, particularly Gloucestershire, and by the name of cowpox. Are you, are you kidding me? I almost fell asleep halfway through reading that. I'd rather come down with smallpox and read that again. How about cowpox? Killer becomes a cure. New business idea. I go back in time. I do go back and I crush it as an editor. Uh, this pamphlet outlined Jenner's success in protecting James Fifth from smallpox infection with material from cowpox pustule in addition to 22 related cases. 
word begins to spread of a new way to cheat death. 1801, at Grim Reaper's like, oh, I don't like it. Uh, Jenner publishes a treatise on the origin of vaccine inoculation, in which he summarizes his discoveries and expresses hope that the annihilation of the smallpox, the most dreadful scourge of the human species, must be the final result of this practice. I like you, Ed. You're a good one, Eddie. Massachusetts became the first U.S. state to encourage use of vaccinations against smallpox in 1802. Dr. Waterhouse, the first doctor in Boston to obtain vaccine material, convinces the city's Board of Health to sponsor a public test of vaccination. 19 volunteers are successfully vaccinated. In 1805, the first compulsory vaccination is attempted. Marianne Elisa of, of, Lusa, of Luca, Napoleon's sister, became the first ruler to try to make vaccinations compulsory. She was unable, however, to determine a practical method of enforcement. Four years later, the first state law in the U.S. mandating vaccinations was enacted in Massachusetts in 1809. Damn you, Illuminati! Forcing your poisons upon us for over 200 years. In 1813, the U.S. Congress authorizes President James Madison to establish a national vaccine agency. And President Madison says, and I quote, nah, nah, player. Man, fuck that shit. Vaccines give kids autism. Everybody knows that. And then smallpox wiped out just under 2 million Americans in the winter of 1813, 1814. Or that doesn't happen. Or maybe Madison appoints James Smith, a physician from Baltimore, as the national, national vaccine agent. America is so determined to get vaccines out to citizens that the U.S. Post Office is required to carry mail weighing up to 0.5 ounces for free if it contains smallpox vaccine material, servicing Congress's ruling to preserve the genuine vaccine matter and to furnish the same to any citizen of the United States. Trying to help people. In 1817, the first of seven cholera pandemics over the next 150 years hits humanity at large. This wave of the small intestine infection originated in Russia where 1 million people died, 1 million the first cholera vaccine won't be developed until 1885. Spreading through feces, infected water, and food, the cholera bacterium was passed along to British soldiers who brought it to India, where millions more died. We define cholera in great detail in the Donner Party suck. So many buttholes, quite literally blown off due to McGill's pop, which you know is a fake symptom of, <laughs> of a fake disease, if you heard that episode, uh, of a real disease, actually. Fake symptom realism. The reach of the British Empire and its navy spread cholera to Spain, Africa, Indonesia, China, Japan, Italy, Germany, and America, where it killed 150,000 people. The United Kingdom Vaccination Act of 1853 makes smallpox vaccination mandatory in the first three months of an infant's life. A parent's penalty for not complying is fine, a fine or imprisonment. The first mandatory vaccination law in vaccination history. Uh, you know, of, of, its, of its kind. And of course, there's backlash. Backlash, excuse me. Anti-vaxxers begin to protest. And why exactly do they protest? Well, for some parents, the small vaccination or the smallpox va vaccination induced fear and protest because it involved scoring the flesh on a child's arm and inserting lymph from the blister of a person who had been vaccinated about a week earlier. I get that. If you don't understand how vaccinations work, totally normal why the government is, uh, or totally normal to fear you know, uh, why the government is, you know, essentially looking like they're trying to force your kid to get sick. Some objectors, including the local clergy, believe that the vaccine is unchristian because it comes from an animal. Uh, not going to lie. Don't care for this argument. This is where I differ from some of our religious listeners. If the argument comes down to a debate between because this is what science has proven and because God said so, I'm going to go with science every time. Other protesters objected to vaccination be uh, because they believed it violated their personal liberty, which it did, but for good reason. Interesting how the current anti-vaccination arguments are really nothing new. They've been around for a long time. We fear what we don't understand. And historically, a lot of meat sacks have not understood science. 
the scientific community has had to fight against those people's beliefs for a long, long time. Now let's take a break from talking about people who fear what they don't understand and talk about people who help us overcome that very specific fear. The Great Courses Plus. <laughs> Hail Nimrod. That was quite the sponsored transition. I think I nailed it. Pretty sure I hit that one over the center field wall. Yes, Time Suck is brought to you by The Great Courses Plus. There's a sense of pride that comes with being able to speak confidently about a subject. That's why I love The Great Courses Plus. With the streaming service, you get unlimited access to thousands of lectures on topics like death, dying, the afterlife, time travel, money management, even crime scene investigation, all from top engaging experts in their fields. And with the Great Courses Plus app, you can watch or listen just about anywhere. I recommend checking out the course in Introduction to Infectious Diseases. 24 lectures armed with tons of facts about bacterial infections, viruses, vaccines, and more delivered by Professor Dr. Barry C. Fox, MD, a Madison, Wisconsin doctor with over 30 years of experience treating infectious diseases. Listen to the 32-minute lecture, lecture number nine, Vaccines Save Lives. If you don't trust me, I'm sure as hell not a doctor. Go see what Dr. Fox has to say. He seems to know a few things since he's dedicated the entirety of his long adult life to the study of infectious disease. Go get that awesome feeling of pride that comes with new knowledge. Sign up for The Great Courses Plus. Time Suckers get an all-access trial for free. Show your support for this podcast. Sign up today through my special URL, thegreatcoursesplus.com slash timesuck. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash timesuck. Link in the episode description. Button that takes you right to the deal in the sponsor section of the Timesuck app. Now back to life before widespread vaccinations when millions and millions of people died on the reg from diseases that were are now entirely preventable. 1855, starting in China, moving to India and Hong Kong, the bubonic plague claims 15 million more victims. If you're bad at math, that's way more than a few. Also in 1855, Massachusetts passes the first U.S. law mandating vaccinations for school children. Measles then play a role in the Civil War a short time later. Historian Michael B. A. Oldstone wrote about the role of measles between 1861 and 1865 in the U.S. Civil War uh, in his book, Viruses, Plagues, and History, writing, the American Civil War was the last large-scale military conflict fought before the germ theory of disease was developed. Two-thirds of soldiers who died in that war, 660,000 in all, were killed by uncontrolled infectious diseases. Of these, in the Union Army, over 67,000 had measles. More than 4,000 died. Sweet Nimrod, those little asshole demons, killing more, you know, meat sacks than cannon fire. In 1875, after Fiji was ceded to the British Empire, a royal party visited Australia as a gift from Queen Victoria. Arriving during a measles outbreak, the royal party brought the disease back to their island and another disease fire burned up another human forest. The island quickly became littered with corpses that were scavenged by wild animals. Entire villages died, were burned down, sometimes with the sick trapped inside the fires. One third of Fiji's population, a total of 40,000 people died. Back to the U.S. now. In 1879, Louis Pasteur invents autism because one time a kid looked at him funny and decided to punish all children forever by tricking doctors into sticking needles in them and pumping them full of disability-inducing poison. Or, in 1879, Louis Pasteur produced the first laboratory-developed vaccine, the vaccine for chicken cholera. So many less chickens died of chicken cholera because of this vaccine, which made chickens super happy. You know, until they realized that surviving that disaster, you know, just meant that they were going to live long enough to get their heads fucking cut off and then have their delicious little chicken bodies thrown into stew pots. So, not great for chickens, but it would help, you know, humans later. In August of 1881, Carlos Finlay presented the paper The Mosquito Hypothetically Considered as the Transmitting Agent of Yellow Fever to Havana's Academy of Sciences. 
and it was the first published work to correctly identify mosquitoes as the ultimate source of this disease. Finlay's theory, of course, was initially ridiculed. It was accepted only when U.S. Army scientists working under Walter Reed demonstrated that it was correct two decades later. So that's fun. For 20 years, countless people died needlessly because people were afraid of and or didn't understand recent scientific advancements. Feels familiar. In 1881, Louis Pasteur and U.S. Army physician George Miller Sternberg both independently discover that the Streptococcus pneumoniae bacterium is responsible for cases of pneumonia and meningitis, as well as other illnesses. More progress. Science has contagious disease in its crosshairs now. In June of 1881, the results of Pasteur's large study of anthrax vaccination in livestock become evident in a dramatic public or in, in dramatic public demonstrations. In a test of his vaccine, all 25 of the unvaccinated animals die. Only one of the vaccinated animals dies, likely as a result of pregnancy, of a miscarriage, rather than of anthrax. But the anti-vax crowd at the time still not convinced. They were like, yeah, that's kind of cool, but you don't tell me how to raise my kids, okay? Now get the hell off my property! Uh, in 1882, the Anti-Vaccination League of America held its first meeting in New York. Among the assertions made by the speakers at the meeting was the idea that smallpox was spread not by contagion, but by filth. This became a popular, though incorrect, argument of anti-vaccinationists, or anti-vaccinationists, yeah, I said it right, it's a crazy word, uh, and of course would lead to piles of dead bodies in the streets of numerous cities across the globe. Why are doctors trying to stick us with needles when everyone knows smallpox just comes from mud and shit? What we need is better boots and gloves, so you don't touch the mud and the shit. We can just avoid mud, sidewalks and lawns, and not pooping on them. That's what we need to focus on, not your... Damn fool doctor nonsensory. Louis Pasteur develops the first rabies vaccine in 1885. It's first used on a human July 6th. A nine-year-old Joseph Meister, who had been mauled by a rabid dog, Joseph, would survive, grow up to work for Pasteur, Hale Nimrod. In 1893 in Muncie, Indiana, smallpox outbreak illustrates the effect of lower vaccination rates on the spread of a disease. A local physician notes that the vaccination there had been largely neglected since the last epidemic of smallpox in 1876. Despite measures that included a near quarantine of the city, fumigation of mail, cancellation of public gatherings, and compulsory vaccination, the epidemic spreads from May 1893 through October. In the end, 140 people contract smallpox, 20 die. Not millions, but still 20 too many. The first major documented polio outbreak in the U.S. occurs in Rutland County, Vermont, June 17, 1894, 18 deaths, 132 cases of permanent paralysis are reported. Not really that long ago. The British Vaccination Act of 1898 provides a conscious cl clause to allow exemptions to mandatory smallpox vaccination. This clause gives rise to the term conscientious objector, which later came to refer to those who opposed military service. By the end of the year, magistrates had issued more than 200,000 vaccination exemptions. Anti-vaccinationists in England, other parts of Europe, the United States become active, more active in publishing, speaking, and demonstrating about their objections to vaccinations. In 1899, more yellow fever hits the Americas, this time in Panama. The French officially abandoned efforts to build the Panama Canal, transfer the rights to the project to the U.S., in part because of yellow fever and malaria deaths, you know, killing the project's workers. In 1900, U.S. Army researchers discovered that mosquitoes are the cause of yellow fever. Four years later, anti-mosquito methods allow the completion of the Panama Canal. Now let's bring autism into the timeline. In 1908, Eugen Bleuler, a Swiss psychiatrist first coined the terms uh, schizophrenia, schizoid, and autism after observing patients displaying severe cases of schizophrenia. More on this as we go. Uh, back to viruses and bacteria's domination of the earth. Let's talk about the 1918 Spanish flu. 
1918, just barely over a century ago, an avian-borne flu virus results in 50 million deaths worldwide. The Spanish flu, thought to have originated in China, then spread by Chinese laborers being transported by rail across Canada on their way to Europe and North America. The flu first appears in Kansas in early 1918, visible in Europe by the spring. Wire services report a flu outbreak in Madrid in the spring of 1918 that led to the pandemic being called Spanish flu. By October, hundreds of thousands of Americans died. Body storage scarcity hit code red, but then the flu threat disappeared in the summer of 1919 when most of the infected had either developed immunities or died. And if we got rid of vaccines now, you can bet your sweet meat sack ass we'd have plenty more Spanish flu type infections disasters. The following year, vaccines get some bad press. 1919, dozens of Dallas, Texas children are sickened and five die uh, from a contaminated batch of diphtheria toxin antitoxin mixture TIT. The TAT was manufactured by Mulford and Co. in Philadelphia, and the company paid damages to the afflicted families. Anti-vaxxers now have some real vaccination deaths to point to. Vaccinations kill those kids. No doubt about it. Mistakes happen. But abandoning successful vaccines because of a few isolated negative incidents makes about as much sense as having doctors, having surgeons stop performing heart surgeries because a few times surgeons made mistakes during surgery and some patients died. Not smart to stop doing something that will for sure save many, 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 many lives in order to save a couple lives. Got to look at the big picture. By 1922, many U.S. schools have started requiring smallpox vaccinations before children can attend. Despite worldwide vaccination successes against smallpox, opposition to vaccination continues to the 20s, particularly against compulsory vaccination. In 1926, a group of health officers visits Georgetown, Delaware to vaccinate the townspeople. A retired army lieutenant and a city councilman lead an armed mob to force out the medical professionals successfully preventing their vaccination attempts. <laughs> Fuck, when is that going to start happening again? Another setback of vaccinations comes from the land of kangaroos. In 1928, bacterial contamination of diphtheria toxin antitoxin mixture in Bundaberg, Queensland, Australia, leads to the death of 12 kids. Five others become critically ill, but recover. This tragedy occurs when a multi-use bottle of TAT containing no preservatives was improperly stored and reused. Another mistake. 1929, another vaccination setback. A disaster is caused by the use of the Bacillus Calumet Guerin BCG for tuberculosis vaccination. Uh, it strikes the German city of Lubeck. In 1929 and 1930, 72 babies die from tuberculosis out of 252 vaccinated. Many additional infants made ill as a result of vaccination. The vaccination used was later found to have been contaminated with human tuberculosis, uh, when, a, when a human tuberculosis strain being studied in the same lab where the vaccines was produced, you know, got in there. Another setback occurs five years later. In 1935, two separate teams were at work developing and testing a polio vaccine. Both projects, you know, come to disastrous ends. At New York University, Maurice Brody, MD, a young researcher, prepares a killed polio virus vaccine, testing it on chimpanzees, on himself, and finally on children. He enrolls about 11,000 individuals in his trial. Meanwhile, John Colmer, MD of Temple University in Philadelphia, develops an attenuated poliovirus vaccine, which he tested in about 10,000 children. Several subjects die of polio. Many others are paralyzed, made ill, or suffer allergic reactions to the vaccines. Fuck. This argument will provide legitimate fuel for the argument against mandatory vaccinations that exist to this day. But again, it's, it's about numbers. You have to look at overall numbers. 
1936, Max Thieler and his colleagues developed a live attenuated vaccine for yellow fever using tissue cultures prepared from embryonic chicken eggs. Among the many subcultures of the yellow fever virus in the lab, the one designated 17D is used, given the vaccine its name. He published uh, the results of U.S. vaccine trials uh, on humans in 1937, and the vaccine was easily adapted for mass production and became the universal standard and saved countless lives. In 1939, the March of Dimes is born. An enormous fundraising effort begins when entertainer Eddie Cantor suggests on the radio that people send dimes to President Roosevelt, right? President, you know, Roosevelt had polio at the White House to help fight polio. Within a few weeks, people had mailed 2,680,000 dimes to the president, which is hilarious to me just how different money is now. Like now the stamp to send the dime would cost, you know, be worth more than the dime. But anyway, other celebrities. And then grassroots organizers joining the campaign over the years. The March of Dimes has raised tens of millions of dollars, much uh, much of which has gone to, you know, find a polio vaccine. A a huge early supporter of the March of Dimes and the polio vaccination movement in in general, uh, I find this very interesting, uh, were were the popular 20th century American comic book characters, Pootie and Juju. Uh, March 1st, 1939, issue 197 of Pootie and Juju comes out and is titled, Poor Polio Pootie forgot a shot he should have got. In this emotionally gripping issue, Pootie decides not to get vaccinated against polio, ends up losing the ability to walk. After not going with Juju to the doctor when Juju got vaccinated, Pootie comes down with a fever and a headache, achy leg muscles, and then floppy and flaccid arms and legs. Pootie suddenly can't stand, and Pootie asks Juju to help Pootie to the doctor, and the doctor diagnoses Pootie with polio. Then Pootie asks the doctor for a shot to clear it all up. And the doctor explains how vaccines don't work if you don't get them before you catch a virus and that there is no cure for polio, only a way to prevent catching it in the first place. And while the doctor explains all this using medical jargon, Pootie zones out. Pootie gets confused, stares blankly into the middle distance, not understanding the word. When the doctor finishes, Pootie says, so how much is the shot, doc? And then Juju yells, too little, too little, Pootie. It's too late. There is no shot for you now. It's too little, too little, Pootie. And both Pootie and Juju's eyes well up with tears. And then Pootie says, Zip it, Juju. You sure squawk a lot for someone ain't never said nothing. Now go find me a pencil eraser. And then after Juju hands Pootie the eraser, Pootie uses it to completely erase little Pootie arms, little Pootie legs, little Pootie body over the next few pages. And then Pootie redraws all that rewinds the calendar by a year, gets the vaccine before ever coming into contact with polio. And Juju is blown away, screaming, well, park it in the shed if that ain't a nifty tricksy trick. And then Pootie addresses the reader directly, saying, hey, Max and Dolls, I can just erase mistakes, but you ain't made of lead. And you'll lose your head unless you get the shot you should have got. Support FDR in the March of Dimes, stand up to polio by standing in line in the vaccination line. And then Juju puts an arm around Pootie and kisses Pootie's cheek and says, not too little Pootie, just the right amount of diddle. And then they both laugh hysterically, uh, you know, because uh, neither of them has any fucking clue what that means. The end of the comic. The end of the comic, not of, not of the timeline. If you're confused, you're either a new listener or you forgot about our two strange little friends. Been too long since I heard from Pootie and Juju. Ah, this sucks. Very own little uh, mini show within a show. I like them. Time to move on to 1940 now. 1940, Thomas Francis Jr., MD. Jonas Sock, MD, serve as lead researchers at the University of Michigan to develop the first, right, uh, inactivated flu vaccine with support from the U.S. Army. 
Their vaccine uses fertilized chicken eggs in a method that is still used to produce most flu vaccines today. The army is involved with the research because of their experience with troop loss from flu illness and deaths during World War I. Also in 1940, American researchers began to use the term autism to describe children with social and emotional issues. 1942, a bivalent two-component vaccine that offers protection against influenza A and influenza B viruses is produced after the discovery of influenza B viruses. Also in 1942, the Communicable Disease Center, the CDC, opens in Atlanta. A big fan of the CDC. 1943, Leo Kanner, an American child psychiatrist, publishes his paper, Autistic Disturbances of Effective Contact, after observing 11 children that displayed common autistic traits. Kanner names this condition early early infantile autism, now known as autism, actually more recently known as autism spectrum disorder. 1944, uh, the sea of cell cultures for virus growth is discovered. This allows viruses to be cultured outside the body for the first time. The ability to culture influenza from respiratory secretions allows diagnosis of influenza. In 1944, Hans Osberger, an Austrian pediatrician, medical theorist, medical professor, observes a group of children who exhibit similar conditions to the ones Kanner studied. However, most of these conditions are milder forms of autism and include impaired motor and speech skills. The symptoms would later be used to define Asperger's syndrome. And now, of course, that that uh, term has gone away as well. Uh, 1945, the influenza vaccine, first licensed for use in civilians. During the seasonal flu epidemic of 1947, investigators determined that changes in the antigenic composition of circulating influenza viruses has rendered existing vaccines ineffective highlighting the need for continuous surveillance and characterization of circulating flu viruses. And this is why we have an annual flu vaccine to this day. In 1948, the World Health Organization, WHO, Influenza Center, is established at the National Institute for Medical Research in London. The primary tasks of the organization are to collect and characterize influenza viruses, develop methods for the laboratory diagnosis of influenza virus infections, establish a network of laboratories, and disseminate data accumulated from their investigations. (laughs) Yeah, right. Okay, reptilians, sure. Okay, that's what you're up to, London. (laughs) I get it. Studying the flu and shit. Get the fuck. Like, I don't understand. London's important to the new world order. Hiding in plain sight. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Oh, you're not running experiments on children. Forced to live in cages, are you? Not doing that. You're for sure not creating diseases to create disharmony and discord and death and suffering within the human race so you lizard cocksuckers can feed off our negative energy. You can have some negative energy sandwiches. I get it. (laughs) Not doing any of that stuff. Wink, wink. Sorry, blacked out for about 30 seconds there. Uh, Mac. Also in 1948, the Kyoto disaster occurs in Kyoto, Japan. 68 of 606 children die after diphtheria immunization as a result of improper manufacture of toxoid. Damn it. Another setback. Another bullet to be fired from the anti-vaccination gun. 1954, super badass Jonas Salk has successful polio vaccine trial. Super big deal. Salk is credited with the invention of the polio vaccine. Starting in Hong Kong in 1957 and spreading throughout China and then into the United States, the Asian flu becomes widespread in England, where over six months, 14,000 people die. Second wave follows, causing just under 70,000 deaths in the U.S. Just over 60 years ago, the flu. Took out damn near 70,000 Americans. It's way too recent. Luckily, a vaccine was developed the same year, which ended the pandemic. Thank you, scientists, for literally saving tens of thousands of additional lives. Noted. Appreciated. I appreciate you, scientists. Also in 1957, a new H2N2 flu virus emerges to trigger a pandemic. About 1.1 million die globally, including roughly 116,000 U.S. 
So many people killed by the flu so recently. 1963, a measles vaccine is licensed. After demonstrating its safety and efficacy, I'm just going to stay with safety. After demonstrating its safety and efficiency, efficacy, fucking some of these words, too many words, right? Efficacy, okay. First in monkeys and then humans, John Enders and colleagues declare their measles vaccine capable of preventing infection. Their Edmonston B strain of measles virus was transformed into a vaccine license in the U.S. in 1963. Nearly 19 million doses would be administered over the next 12 years. Uh, Dr. Benjamin Rubin of Wyeth Laboratories patents patents the bifurcated needle for delivery of smallpox vaccine on July 13th, 1967, 1965, excuse me. Using bifurcated needles for vaccination requires less vaccine material for each dose and was easier than previous methods. This development would have large implications for smallpox vaccination campaigns. Also in 1965, the Autism Society of America, founded by Ivar Lovas, sounds like a fucking Russian New World Order kind of puppet guy, uh, Bernard Rimland and Ruth C. Sullivan to help increase public awareness, support for families and individuals with autism. In 1968, a new H3N2 influenza virus. There's so many diseases. Isn't that scary? This virus emerges to trigger another pandemic, resulting in roughly 100,000 deaths in the U.S. alone. One million worldwide. 1968, that happens. <sighs> 1969, Maurice Hilleman, working at Merck, large pharmaceutical company, Illuminati puppet organization, clearly, modifies a rubella vaccine virus from Paul Parkman and Harry Meyer, scientists from the Division of Biologics Standards. The vaccine enters commercial use in 1969, 1970. Year later, 71, the MMR vaccine licensed protection against measles, mumps, rubella provided at the same time via one shot. The U.S. government licenses Merck's combined trivalent measles, mumps, and rubella vaccine, MMR, in 1971. Combination vaccines, several advantages over single vaccines. They reduce the need for several separate injections. They reduce costs of stocking and shipping multiple containers. Combination vaccines can help improve overall vaccination rates by simplifying the vaccination process. For the next few years in the 70s, several new vaccines are licensed and studied. Research on autism also brings a new finding. 1975, the first statistic published by the CDC states that one in 5,000 children are affected by autism spectrum disorder. And that's in America. In 1976, reported cases of pertussis, whooping cough, have been dropping in the U.S. since the introduction of the combined DTP, diphtheria, tetanus, and pertussis vaccine. The highest recorded number of annual cases have been in 1934 with more than 260,000 cases. But by 1976, we're down to just over 1,000. 1,010. Hail Nimrod. I like that. That's a better number. You know, if you have to pick between 260,000 people getting sick or 1,000, 1,000 seems better to me. I don't have a degree in math, but I, you know, it feels right in my heart. 1978. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention declare a goal of eliminating measles from the United States by 1982. Although that goal would not be met, wide-free vaccination drastically reduced the incidence of the disease and it would be declared eliminated in the country by 2000, by the year 2000. Over the next two years, more advanced vaccines for rubella and rabies are licensed. And by 1980, the World Health Assembly accepts the WHO goal, WHO global, WHOville. Let's talk about WHOville for a second. Uh, No, by 1980, the World Health Assembly accepted the WHO Global Commission's recommendation. So many motherfucking scrabble words. And declared the world free from smallpox. 1981, the measles elimination program reported measles cases. uh, Were down an unprecedented 80% from the previous year. That's pretty good. 
The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention noted that only 778 cases reported in the first 14 weeks of 1981, while 3,897 had been reported during the same period the previous year. Progress in vaccines for several diseases continues in the early 80s. 1985, the Pan American Health Organization, PAHO, PAHO, uh, which serves as the regional office of the World Health Organization for the Americas, announces the campaign to achieve polio elimination in the Americas by 1990. Its original goal of 1990 would not be met, but the last case of wild-type paralytic polio was reported in the Americans in 1991, and the region of the Americas was certified polio-free. Ding, ding. You're polio-free. 1994. 1993, the Vaccines for Children, VFC, program is established as a result of a measles outbreak to provide vaccines at no cost to children whose parents or guardians might not be able to afford them. The program increases the likelihood of children getting recommended vaccinations on schedule, also in 93. Costs of the influenza vaccine become covered under a benefit under Medicare Part B. 1994, Russia hit hard by diphtheria. Declining diphtheria immunization among children and waning adult immunity led to an epidemic in the former Soviet Union. 1994, the Russian Federation saw almost 40,000 diphtheria cases. In contrast, four years previously, 1990, there was only about 1,200 cases. That's not good. August 20th, 1994, polio declared eliminated from the Americas. 1998, big year for the anti-vax movement. You could say it was the foundation of the modern anti-vax movement. British researcher Andrew Wakefield, who we talked about earlier, along with 12 co-authors, publishes that paper we talked about in The Lancet, claiming evidence of a measles virus in the digestive systems of autistic children. This bullshit study, I already, you know, pointed out, uh, later tossed out, suggested a relationship between the MMR, measles, mumps, and rubella vaccine and autism. Vaccination rates in England drop in response from more than 90% to 80% or lower, well below the level required for herd immunity to measles. Measles cases, meanwhile, began to rise, while only 56 cases were confirmed in Wales and England in 1998. 1,348 will be confirmed by 2008, and that is a direct result of lowered vaccination rates. In 2004, when it was reported that some of the subjects of Wakefield's paper had been recruited by a lawyer involved in a lawsuit against vaccine manufacturers, 10 of the 12 co-authors of the study retract their interpretation regarding the link between the vaccine and autism. Numerous epidemiological, epidemiological, there we go. Fuck, epi, 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 epidemiological, epidemiological. I don't like that word at all. Studies performed since have also provided additional evidence that no such link exists. Part of me wishes this is a joke. I could just go be like a medical lecture, like a fake medical lecture and just have just, just fucking load it with the most dense medical terms. Just watch students as a prof- supposed professor is like the epidemiological, God damn it. I'm, I'm Robert Hansen. I'm a version of, I'm the mushmouth version without the killing, but with the same frustration over not being able to say things I want to say. At the turn of the 21st century, continuous transmission of measles halted in the United States. The next year in 2001, more research into autism comes to a new conclusion. The National Institute of Health estimates that autism affects one in 250 children, a drastic increase from the estimates of 1975. Anti-vaxxers use this to jump, uh, use this jump to justify their skepticism and link this jump with the jump in vaccinations. Again, as I explained earlier, was there a real rise in autism or were doctors just becoming much more familiar with how to diagnose autism? And again, correlation does not, you know, uh, lead to causation, does not imply causation. 14 years after the launch of the Global Eradication Program, the World Health Organization declares polio eliminated in Europe, June 6, 2002. 
2003, the first nasal spray flu vaccine is licensed. The USA's readiness for the spread of disease continues to improve. 2007, American Veterinarian or the American Veterinary Medical Association, AVMA, establishes the One Health Initiative Task Force, an effort to attain optimal health for people, animals, and the environment. Praise Bojangles, less disease for meat sex and fur babies. Then American Medical Association, the American Medical Association unanimously approves a resolution calling for increased collaboration between human and veterinary medical communities. The term One Health, which looks at the interactions between animal and human health, enters the medical and scientific lexicon. The One Health approach is recommended for pandemic preparedness during the International Ministerial Conference on Avian and Pandemic Influenza. Fuck these names of these places. These acronyms. God damn it, science community. You want people to like you more? Make easier names. Fucking... Just instead of international ministerial conference, just call like fucking flu guys or something. I don't know. Make it fun. You got to get a different marketing teams together. God damn it. The average person's like, the what? Sounds fucking dumb. Also in 2007, the FDA approves the first U.S. vaccine for people against an avian influenza A, H5N1 virus. I want to get hired to come up with different names for medical or like tech, medical, government. Just make it more fun. You know, all these long-ass, crazy-ass titles. The International Ministerial Epidemiological Conference on the Avian and Pandemic uh, Epidemiological... uh, Ah, call it, you know, uh, Foo Fighters. You know, it sounds kind of like Foo Fighters. Sounds like fucking younger and cooler. You know, call like fuck disease and shit, right? That's kind of cool, you know, speaks to the youth. Uh, Okay. Also in 2007, anyway, the FDA approves, yeah, said that U.S. vaccine. The push to eradicate the tiny, greasy, shifty-eyed sons of bitches continue. November of 2007, Bill and Melinda Gates, their foundation, gives $100 million to the Rotary International to combat polio. Rotary International, that's not a bad organization, right? Two words. Okay, that's cool. Uh, Promises to match the grant over a three-year period for a total of $200 million to be used in the global eradication campaign. Bill Gates, I don't know him. You know, but he seems like a pretty smart guy. If Bill Gates was on one side of a debate and Jenny McCarthy was on the other side, hmm, who should I go with? 2009, there are zero diphtheria cases in the U.S. for the fifth consecutive year in fewer than 75 years. Diphtheria, once a leading cause of premature death of children, virtually eliminated in the U.S. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cholera epidemic begins in Yemen. April 2017, raging through a country whose water, sanitation, and health infrastructures have been damaged by conflict. As of mid-August, about 500,000 cases, nearly 2,000 deaths had occurred. Stuff still killing people. July 11th, 2017, the World Health Organization. That's a good, that's a good one. Who? It's like, it's like a cool band. Reported that measles outbreaks in Europe during the past 12 months led to 35 deaths. 31 of the measles deaths occurred in Romania which had, you know, had years of declining measles containing vaccine coverage. For 2015, the World Health Organization estimated two-dose MCV coverage at 88% of Romanian children, down from a high of 97% coverage in 2003. In most countries experiencing outbreaks in 2017, measles immunization rates were much lower than 95% the coverage amount needed for uh, herd immunity. Italy alone recorded 3,300 confirmed cases of measles, one death in the first half of 2017. Ukraine reported 1,000 cases by the end of two, uh, July 2017. Poland uh, actually uh, 
announced uh, 2 million cases. Do you know that 5 million Polish people die of diseases every year because they don't get vaccinated and a traditional Polish cuisine is to eat your own shit? So, you know, I probably shouldn't, that probably didn't need to be in this episode. Hey, declining vaccination rates, totally preventable illnesses. Lawmakers and health officials in European countries have begun to respond to declining vaccination rates. In Germany, legislation is pending that would fine parents for not seeking compulsory advice on child immunization. Italian health officials have made immunization against 12 childhood diseases mandatory for public school attendance. In France, where currently children must be immunized only against diphtheria, tetanus, and polio, 11 childhood vaccines, including MCV, became mandatory in 2018. Ongoing economic and civic unrest led to a return of measles in Venezuela in August of 2018, just over a year ago, or I'm sorry, just pretty much exactly a year ago. What am I talking about? The World Health Organization declared the entire region of the Americas free from circulating measles in 2016, only to have this highly infectious disease return at a time of crisis due to a lack of enough vaccines. According to WHO guidelines, measles are considered endemic when the same type of measles virus has been circulating in a country for more than 12 continuous months. Gaps in vaccination coverage in Venezuela provided an entry point for an imported virus, a type first present in Asia and then in Europe, to circulate in under-immunized populations. The disease has recently crossed Venezuelan borders to infect people in Brazil, including highly vulnerable indigenous populations who are completely unvaccinated. God knows how many of those people have already died. And that, my dear meat sacks, is this episode's Time Suck Timeline. Good job, soldier. You've made it back. Barely. I hope that timeline really laid out why we need vaccinations. I, I edited and reread and studied this, these notes more than any other episode of Time Sick by far. You know, admittedly, science, it was not my strongest subject. I worked very hard to kind of overcompensate for that. <laughs> Clearly, Never going to be a scientific lecturer, but, you know, uh, luckily there's a lot of scientific studies out there, uh, and, and I think I'm pretty decent at, you know, being able to differentiate between science and pseudoscience and go with legitimate sources, and we included a lot of them. Several of us, you know, researched this episode very thoroughly, and I hope that laid some important information out there. You know, we need vaccinations because infectious disease, historically the number one killer of us meat sacks by far. The only reason we don't worry about infectious diseases much today is because vaccinations have been very successful. You know, and ironically, again, because of that success, more people are now choosing not to get vaccinated. Bro, we don't even need it anymore, dude. Diseases aren't even fucking killing people and shit. Why should I get vaccinated? The diseases don't kill anyone anymore because we've gotten vaccinated. It's a very frustrating argument. You know, but what about vaccines making us sick? You know, giving us disorders like autism. I've already stated that there's no credible scientific link between autism and vaccinations, but let me, let me debunk a few more vaccinations. Or I'm sorry, let me debunk a few more vaccine arguments, anti-vaccine arguments. There we go. That's the way I should have said it the first time. There are four main arguments against vaccinations in the debate over their use in children. Uh, the first argument is that modern vaccinations contain toxic substances such as aluminum and mercury, and these substances cause autism. They don't cause autism. They do include some of those substances. That part's true. However, the reality is that we consume 30 to 50 milligrams of these substances daily through just living our lives on a planet full of these substances, substances like aluminum and mercury. And these 30 to 50 milligrams are 20 times more than the maximum allowed in a vaccine. Can't debunk 
That association any better than that. You get way more aluminum and mercury put into your body just fucking walking around living than you're ever going to get in a, in a vaccine. And you get it every day. The second major argument for anti-vaxxers is that too many vaccines can and do overload children's immune systems, causing health problems. The truth here, according to medical professionals and the CDC, is that children are exposed to more environmental antigens, again, in one day, than what is contained in all of the vaccines they will ever fucking receive. Boom! Mic dropped. Myth debunked. The third argument that is often used is that natural immunity to disease is better than vaccination. No. With measles, the death rate is two deaths per 1,000 cases in developed countries. 20 times that rate in low-resource nations. One in one million people have a severe adverse reaction to MMR vaccines. Debunked. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Next myth. The final most used argument against vaccines is that immunizations cause autoimmune disorders, asthma, allergies, other things. The truth, at least according to scientists and doctors, the entire medical community, is that not one large-scale study has shown that vaccines increase the risk of any of these things. Not one, not even by accident. Now let's show some sympathy for the anti-vax crowd and make a final emotional appeal to do the right thing for you and your family. Get vaccinated unless special health problems prevent you from doing so. Let's be nice. But first, let's be fucking naughty. That's fun. Let's see what some YouTube commenters have to say about uh, anti-vaxxers on today's Idiots of the Internet. Idiots of the Internet. Today's video is called Middle Ground, Pro-Vaccine versus Anti-Vaccine Should Your Kids Get Vaccinated. Almost 3.6 million views, 86,000 likes, 6.4 thousand dislikes. First published February 3rd, 2019 by Jubilee, who describes the video saying, we brought people together who both support and oppose vaccination to see if they can find middle ground. And the people in the video are, are very nice and respectful towards each other, uh, towards each other's opinions. Luckily, the people in the comment section don't play nice. A comment from a guy named Sam Villardes sums up the true lunacy of the anti-vaccination argument. Oh, I love this. Writing, doctor, I have a medical degree and 15 years experience. Karen, I have a Quora account. <laughs> exactly. I talk about this phenomenon in my stand-up right now. One person go to school for something for seven years, right? And then it can be in the field, continuing to research it for like 30 more years. You know, they, they, they believe something that 99.99% of their peers believe. Then somebody else reads like one article or watches one video by someone who cites no legitimate sources and then believes the opposite. That's just not logical. Uh, wonderful smartass, James Roberts, posts a quote from one of the debaters. The doctor doesn't know your child as much as you do. And then James writes, you know what he does know, Karen? The human body. Exactly. Holy shit. User Bubba Doe <laughs> cracked my shit up also, posting vaccinated kids are actually much more likely to have autism because unvaccinated kids are all, <laughs> are all dead. <laughs> so dark. That's so fucking funny to me. Oh, I'm going to read that again. Vaccinated kids are much more likely to have autism because unvaccinated kids are all dead. 55 replies to Bubba Doe. The first is from Billy Parker, who claims to be autistic. Billy posts, LOL, good one. I am autistic, but my autism showed before I was vaccinated. So the anti-vax community doesn't have much of an explanation there. LOL. And then user, so done, who comments next, does not think Bubba Doe is funny. 
replying with all caps. It's always the all caps with this crowd. Lies. You people live, eat, and breathe lies. But of course, no link to anything, uh, you know, uh, backs up so done, please. No one responds to Jeff Sweet's comment, uh, this next comment, because he seems to be an idiot and his comment makes no sense. (laughs) He writes, what about the fact vaccines don't hold lifelong immunity, LOL, and well under 50%. Shut the fuck up, Jeff. Just tell by the way you wrote that. You need to, you need to get a little more educated. Uh, if a particular vaccine doesn't immunize you for life, that doesn't make it worthless. That's a ridiculous argument. Just means you need to get vaccinated more to be protected. Getting vaccinated a few times is way better than getting dead one time. You dipshit. Kevin Backus Stone kills me posting, you know what never gets old? Unvaccinated kids. hey <laughs> Dead, Kevin. Oh, dead. That is, ah, there's some good shit this, this thread. You know what never gets old? Unvaccinated kids. Uh, such good dark jokes. Evelyn doesn't care for this joke. Responds with, I'm 15 and not vaccinated. My brother's 20 and is not vaccinated. Both of us are very healthy. I suppose you're going to say, oh, well, you're lucky then. Just like you've said countless times to other people. Uh, yeah, Evelyn, that's what he should say because that's the fucking truth. You're lucky that one of the lethal diseases you have not been vaccinated for hasn't made contact with you because if it did, Way higher odds. It's going to fucking kill you. You jackass. I want to punch your parents in their stupid fucking faces right now. And then that one antisocial gal hits a logic grand slam, shutting down the hundreds of comments from people like Evelyn who use the fact that they're unvaccinated and alive and proof that vaccines are necessary. She posts, everyone needs to know that anecdotal evidence isn't proper evidence. You cannot prove that you got sick more often using vaccines. You cannot prove that you stopped getting sick when you stopped vaccinating. You cannot prove that you're perfectly healthy without vaccines. Your personal and easily made up experiences are not evidence. The statistics of deaths from various diseases before vaccines easily shuts down anecdotal evidence. Fucking boom, upper deck. Love it, antisocial gal. Well said, Hail Nimrod. I thought about ending the idiots on that one, but that's not an idiotic statement. You know, it's wonderful. The reply to this next comment is idiotic and way too common in this thread. First, reverse Viper posts, why do we have to stop having all vaccines because a child had a one in a million allergic reaction to the vaccine? And then user so done, oh, Miss All Caps is back. Maybe Mr. All Caps. Why did I say Miss? I don't fucking know that. I'll, I'll, I'll beat myself up after the show. I'll self-flagellate after the show for that, for that error. Uh, so done is back. This time writing, you'd think differently if that one child was your child. You know when you might think differently, so done? When you don't risk a one in a million chance at an allergic reaction, and then your kid fucking dies from a disease, a vaccine would have given them a 99% plus chance of surviving. You're not looking at the big picture so done. Pull your head out of your ass. Step back. Take all the info in. Use some fucking logic instead of being an overly emotional idiot of the internet. Idiots of the internet. Okay. Now that I've been naughty and very opinionated, which I will always be on this subject because it deserves that. uh, I'm going to read an article titled In Defense of the Common Anti-Vaxxer. Very well-written short piece written by Rene F. Nayera, a medical-based scientist. Rene begins. This is just a great emotional appeal to uh, concerned and, and loving 
anti-vaxxer parents, anti-vaxxers in general, Renee begins, as someone who works in public health, few issues catch my attention like the issue of vaccine denialism. I've had the opportunity to investigate outbreaks of vaccine preventable diseases and seen some very interesting and even heartbreaking cases. Why someone would take the chance to have their child sick or even permanently disabled by a vaccine preventable disease is beyond me. As a father, I want to protect I want to protect my child from any and all harms and few harms are as scary as the disability from polio, the scarring from chickenpox, the brain injury from measles. And that's another thing I didn't really touch on. I talked about deaths. There's a lot of other bad outcomes from these diseases. And don't get me started on the true risk of death from influenza. On the other hand, I started to understand vaccine-hesitant parents when I became a parent. Just like I want to protect my child from vaccine-preventable diseases, I also worried about the dangers in her environment. My wife and I were very diligent about not letting her put everything in her mouth. When the exterminator came to our home to deal with an ant infestation, I quizzed them on the insecticide they were using. I researched the insecticide's ingredients, and I even opted for something more natural in dealing with the ants first. When that didn't work, we did go with the recommended non-toxic insecticide. Just like we were hesitant about that insecticide to deal with a problem at home, I came to see how some parents could be hesitant about vaccines. Not only that, but a large swath of the population in the United States has not seen a case of measles or even chickenpox now. So the dangers posed by these diseases is not visible to them. In fact, there has not been a case of polio in the United States for as long as I've been alive. When you combine the desire to protect your offspring with the invisibility of vaccine-preventable diseases because vaccines have been successful in preventing them from coming back in mass, you get people who are hesitant about vaccines. Some of them are hesitant to the point of outright opposing vaccines, and I understand that. These are the common anti-vaccine people, the people who are misinformed and are going on their gut instinct of protecting their child. These are not the people with medical degrees or scientific background who've turned against medicine and science and deny the science behind how vaccines work. These are also not the people who make money writing books and giving lectures about the perceived dangers of vaccines. I further understand their hesitancies and fears when I see how difficult it is to understand risks and probabilities when humans are all about basing our decisions on past experiences more than on making calculations. Just look at how many of us have gone to buy a lottery ticket, especially when the jackpot soars. There is a better chance that we will become an astronaut, but we still think that we'll be billionaires come morning. When I was researching the ingredients of insecticides to use during the ant infestation, I had the benefit of being a scientist when sorting between the good and bad information online. Other people don't have that benefit. They go online, do a Google search, look at the most popular results based on an algorithm and get led astray by celebrities or by people and organizations with titles that sound official. Before too long, their fears are confirmed and they are scared away from vaccinating their children. Add up enough of these parents and we get some, pro and we get some of the problems we're seeing across the country. We see the Arizona Department of Health backing off from teaching kids about vaccines. We see outbreaks of measles in communities with high rates of unvaccinated children. We see pseudo-political organizations pressuring candidates to deny or defund science. When it comes to protecting their children, no one wants to do more than a parent. After all, children are quite literally our future because we'll fade away and they'll be the ones to carry on our work and carry with them our memories. As a result, we are very protective, skeptical of anything that could hurt them. Some of us have the benefit of knowing and understanding scientific principles of toxicology, immunology, epidemiology, 
and biostatistics. Fucking, I got, I got those ones. <laughs> Feeling good. Others among us understand that experts truly are experts and that celebrities are not the best source of information. Yet there is a growing segment of the population that is misinformed and coaxed into making harmful decisions for their children without knowing it. This is where the History of Vaccines website comes in, which is where this uh, was posted. We have a wide variety of informational resources to show that vaccines have been around long enough for us to know uh, that, that they work and that they save lives. We know this is not just by hearing about it in historical items, but also from the scientific observations made on them. If you haven't already, take a look at some of our image galleries or follow us on Instagram or the very informative timeline. Finally, if you have concerns about vaccination, please seek the advice of a licensed healthcare provider who will be able to talk to you about your medical history and take everything into context when advising you on vaccines. Thank you, Renee. That was wonderful. And again, that comes from, if you want to go check it out yourself and check out more about historyofvaccines.org. But yeah, that was fantastic. So I can't think of anything to add. I think I've said everything that, you know, I just repeat myself, which I've already done a little bit. Just vaccinations, get them, get them from your kids. I know you're coming from a good place, but uh, man, do the research, get online, really dig into the, to the science, you know, uh, go to legitimate websites. Don't be, <laughs> please don't go to that paranoid conspiracy place in your head where it's like, you can't trust science because science is tied to the government and the government's all trying to trick us all the time. I've talked about it so much, but it, it really isn't logical to think that a few examples of the government tricking us does not mean they're all trying to trick us all the time. Please, uh, you know, help us keep all our kids alive. Hell Nimrod, time for top five takeaways. Time suck. Top five takeaways. Number one, although many believe that the medical industrial complex is conspiring to make people sick for money, the reality is that doctors get their own kids vaccinated. Why would they do that if it was one big trick? Do they hate their own kids? Are they dumber than Jenny McCarthy and Jim Carrey? I think you know the answer to that. Number two, brilliant people working over many years developed possibly the most important medical science breakthrough of all time, the vaccine, and they developed many ways to implement them. They often did so at great risk to themselves and their families because these, excuse me, because of these risks, we now have the chance to live until we're somewhere around 80. Thank you, brilliant people. Number three, the anti-vax crowd is not full of experts. There are way more experts on the pro-vaccination side of the argument, like almost all of them. The fact that Jenny McCarthy, a meat sack with the intellectual credibility of Tila Tequila, is the most famous figure in this movement, says a lot about the movement. Number four, when it comes to fearing for your kid's health, I fucking get it. We all get it. Being a parent is all about tough decisions, meant to benefit your children. The last thing on earth that most parents want to do is have a medical procedure done that's going to harm their kids, which is why you should get your kids vaccinated. The risk of severe adverse reactions to the MMR vaccine, about one in a million. While one out of 500 kids will die from the measles, right? If they get it 20 times that number will die in more impoverished countries if they get it. If you're on the fence about this, let the math set you free. Number five, new info. Did you know that anti-vaxxers paid for a study that ended up accidentally debunking their own premise? The autism advocacy organization Safe Minds recently funded research it hoped would prove vaccines cause autism in children, but this effort backfired for the organization since the study shows a link between autism and vaccines does not exist. Ouch. Had to sting a little bit. Between 2003 and 2013, Safe Minds provided scientists from the University of Texas Southwestern School of Medicine, the University of Washington, the Johnson Center for Child Health and Development, and other research institutions with approximately $250,000 to conduct a long-term investigation evaluating behavioral, behavioral and brain changes of baby rhesus macaques, little monkeys, that were administered 
uh, a standard course of childhood vaccines. Safe minds hope to find a link between vaccinations and cognitive disorders akin to autism in this monkey population. They did not. Should have spent that quarter million dollars vaccinating kids in third world countries. Saved a bunch of lives instead of needlessly fucking with a bunch of monkeys. Time suck. Top five takeaways. Anti-vaxxers has officially been sucked. By the time you're here in this part of the episode, I'm sure several listeners have already unsubscribed. Several angry emails have been sent in, but I fucking had to do this. Sorry, not sorry. The science reveals what the science reveals. Not going to back down from that. The math doesn't lie. I'd be lying if I said arriving at either side of this debate was totally cool. I don't think it's totally cool to be an anti-vaxxer. However, if you're still an anti-vaxxer, I also don't think you're an idiot. I just think you're very misguided. Thank you to the Time Suck team. Thanks to Queen of the Suck, Lindsay Cummins, High Priest of the Suck, Harmony Velikamp, Jesse Guardian of Grammar Dobner, Reverend Dr. Joe motherfucking Paisley, Time Suck High Priest Alex Dugan, the guy's a bit elixir, Axis Apparel. Thanks to Zach Scriptkeeper Flannery for killing it with a ton of great research and sources this week. Also thanks to Sophie Fact Sorceress Evans for also killing it with so much more amazing research. Uh, yeah, the team really came together. To, to do a good job, I think, for this episode. Join the Cult of the Curious Facebook group if you want to meet and converse with other suckers. Join the Time Suck Discord group for even more interaction. Link in the episode description for both groups. Next week, going to probably piss some more people off, maybe some fringy people that stumble onto the show, getting weird with the Ninth Circle Cult Suck, which is more of a conspiracy. Are European royals killing naked kids for fun, hunting them on a private game reserve like Robert Hansen, like he hunted women on private game reserves? Probably not. This conspiracy is insane. It alleges that Pope Francis rapes and murders kids on the regular, sacrifices their souls to Satan. It alleges that satanic child sacrifice rituals took place during the spring of 2019, spring of 2010, in the countryside of Holland and Belgium. And it's a good excuse to look into some real pedophile rings, you know, like the Catholic Church, like their pedophile scandals. Also, Jeffrey Epstein. Going to get dark, going to get weird next week. It's going to be an interesting ride. Hope you join me. Now let's get to some interesting messages on today's Time Sucker Updates. Updates. Get your Time Sucker Updates. Time Sucker, fellow comic I worked with years ago in South Dakota. Uh, Phil Johnson writes in with some good news about some good people helping the homeless. Hey, Dan. Just finished listening to your episode on the homeless problem. Nicely done. Thought I'd tell you about one of our comedy brethren here in San Jose, California, doing some good for the homeless. Comedian. Pete Munoz has been running a weekly open mic at a bar here in town for years. A thankless task in itself. Yeah, I bet. They collect tips from the audience at the show like a lot of open mics, but instead of doling out a few measly bucks to each comic, Pete, with everybody's consent, uses the money to buy sleeping bags and distribute them to the homeless in our area. Those comics won't miss the five or 10 bucks from the tip jar, but a lot of people are sleeping more comfortably because of the folks at that mic. Man, thanks for all the great episodes, and I hope we end up in the same town sometime soon. Phil. Hail Nimrod, Phil. Man, comics giving back. That is so great. I love it. Giving laughter, giving sleeping bags to the homeless. Thank you, Pete Munoz. Man, thank you, Phil, for bringing this to my attention. And yes, I hope our paths cross soon. Time sucker Colton Hardy sends in one of my favorite kind of updates. Because <laughs> I'm a sick, sadistic son of a bitch. One that involves me putting one of you time suckers in a terribly embarrassing public situation. Colton writes... Damn Lucifina, I'm a biochemist at Utah State University and was driving into the parking garage. I was, <laughs> I was listening to the Lost Tech Suck and rolled down my window to open the gate into the garage. 
a group of colleagues were walking out and walked by my car as you entertained the idea of stringed instrument makers detailing their creations with their own cum. You son of a bitch. <laughs> the looks of horror. I just slowly rolled away. Thanks for that one, Dan. Loving the podcast. Keep on sucking Colton Hardy. Oh, God. Oh, I can picture that so vividly in my mind. I bet you got some looks, Colton. And especially like in Utah, there are, you know, there's a high percentage of people that are extremely socially conservative. Ah, oh, I can't imagine what they were thinking. Is it is here just me coming out of your vehicle and talking about <laughs> people back in, you know, ancient or not ancient, but in Italy hundreds of years ago, just fucking jerking off on violins over and over again, rubbing the gum into it. <laughs> oh man, it doesn't sound like we probably got some new listeners in that situation. Oh, but I gotta laugh whenever that email. Oh, clearly. Just laughs. Oh, glad you enjoyed the show. Uh, interesting little tidbit. About the Black Dahlia suck coming in from Time Sucker Chris Nolan. Chris writes, Hey, Master Sucker, I just got done listening to the episode on Elizabeth Short. And when I got off work, I was telling my grandpa about it. I started off my story by saying, I listened to a podcast about a 1947 murder today. And before I could say anything else, he said, That was my mama's cousin. Not saying a name or anything yet. I asked if he meant Elizabeth Short. Turns out my great grandma was born around the same time as Short, and her maiden name was in fact Short. Keep on sucking, Chris. Man, small world. Now ask your grandpa if he knows who killed her. Helping definitively solve this case would be, you know, pretty cool update if you can swing it. If not, thank you for sending that in. Uh, yeah, I love hearing things like that. Finally, time sucker Nick Parker sends in an inspirational email about the meat sack ability to overcome devastating personal tragedy with the subject line of you suck ass, you shit swizzler. Nick writes, Dear Dan or Captain of the Sacred Muskrat Labius, first of all, you do not suck ass. I just wanted to use a, a catchy attention grabber. I hope it worked. LOL. It did work. Anyways, I would like to tell you of a tale of tragedy and triumph and how you and what you do with your comedy ultimately saved me and helped me get to one of the hardest things I've ever faced in my life. Now, this might get long-winded and I do apologize, but here goes. In September of 2017, I was at Marine Week for the Marine Corps. I've been in it for 10 years now, and I'm currently in the reserves out of Detroit. Well, I was lucky enough to be granted free tickets to the Lions game. They were playing the Cardinals. After the game, I was walking with my buddies to B-dubs, and I ran into the most amazing, beautiful, sweet, four-foot-nine-inch woman. Yes, I said four-foot-nine-inch. She was everything I have ever wanted in a woman. I fell in love immediately with her and who she was. Well, fast forward to February of 2018. All roads are heading towards marriage, me proposing later in the year. Well, the Monday before Valentine's Day, her dad has a really bad stroke. And on Tuesday, she takes him in and finds out he had an ischemic stroke. Wednesday morning, Valentine's Day, he wakes up, kills her mom, kills her, and then turns the gun on himself. <sighs> Man, dude. I went a whole day before knowing what had happened. She lives over two hours from me. Well, Thursday, her friend got a hold of me and told me the news. When things like this happen, people always use the expression, my whole world came crashing down. It quite, it quite literally did for me. I was so heartbroken and in shock, the one person I thought I'd have for my entire life was gone. I was alone. I still miss Katie more than anything. But that's where you come in and how you save me. I didn't know where I was going or what to do. So I've been working the same meaningless job day in and day out. Well, a few months after this happened, I tried listening to Tom Segura Radio on Pandora where your comedy comes up and I've been a longtime fan of your work in comedy. I would listen to your comedy all the time on YouTube, every platform I could try and feel better. Ultimately, it was working. 
I was feeling low and your comedy helped bring me back. One day listening to your comedy on Pandora, I heard an ad for your podcast. First of all, I'm sorry I failed as a fan to not know you had a podcast. Tiss, tiss, I know. Nah, I'm, I'm a terrible marketer. Well, something told me to click, so I did. I had to check it out. I told you of the tragedy, so here comes the triumph. I've almost caught up with every episode, and I especially have gravitated towards the true crime ones and learning about all the serial killers. I had a realization that I not only like this subject, I'm actually very passionate about learning all I can, and that's why this fall, I will be double majoring in criminology and psychology in hopes that when I graduate, I can become an FBI profiler for the BAU and ICISU. I apologize again for this being so long-winded, but I had to share my story with you. And if it weren't for you and what you do, I would never have realized that I could be passionate about this subject. Again, I love all that you've done and created with this podcast. You truly are a gift to us. I'm very appreciative of all you've done for me and the rest of us in the cult of curious. Thank you, Dan, from the bottom of my heart, respectively sent by your faithful time sucker, Nick. P.S. I happened upon 216.5% muskrat labias. I'm not sure of your standards, but will these suffice for shirts? No, we can use that. We can use, we're low. We're almost out of muskrat labias right now. Also, for the love of God, please stop going to the asshole of Ohio, Cleveland. Sorry, Lindsay. Come to Toledo, please. Thank you and keep on sucking. Holy shit, Nick. I finished this suck up uh, about 2.30 in the morning last night before getting up at 6.30 to record. I was exhausted. But then I read this and I got a little second wind. I, I truly work extra hard on these sucks because I, I just, stories like this, I don't know, I feel like a responsibility. I don't want to let you listeners down. I want to do my best to try not to do that. There's so much sadness in the world, so much ignorance. And, and a lot of that ignorance leads to more sadness. And, and I want to do the best job I can to add some laughing and some learning to make this planet a little more fun to, to be stuck on. And just good for you for having the incredible strength to push past what you went through. That would have broken some people. And now you didn't let it break you. You're chasing your dreams. You didn't let tragedy crush you. you. Now you can potentially become a profiler and you can catch some dirtbag son of a bitch who's about to take somebody else's love away. Your path can lead you to spare others a pain similar to the pain that you felt. And I don't think a job can get any nobler than that. I don't think, you, you know, the path you're on can really be any nobler. Lastly, I, I'm heading to Cleveland next year. So, you know, I, I do like it. I do like Cleveland quite a bit. Sorry. I probably won't make it to Toledo. So take a road trip already for the love of Nimrod. Drive on over to the former factory of said, maybe taking the Browns game. I'm, hope, I'm hoping those fuckers light it up this year. Thank you for sending that in. Thank you for being who you are. Hail Nimrod to you. Thanks, time suckers. I needed that. We all did. Have a great week, Meat Sacks. Don't die of any diseases. We already have a readily accessible vaccines for. If you, if you puke yourself to some kind of swine flu or diphtheria death, how the fuck are you supposed to keep on sucking? <laughs> <laughs> Hey, Joe, uh, when I went to the bathroom right before the show, I was uh, shitting out nothing but pure blood. And I uh, I took a little quick temperature test. And I have a fever of 115. Is that bad? That's bad. Thank, thank you. Thanks. Thanks, Dr. Joe. Addiction plays hardball. He would hit me with these verbal attacks. I just said to him, I love you so much. You're such an amazing person. I can't take this ride anymore. It was the fact that dad made that sentiment and broke down. And years later, he told me it had a huge impact on him. 
Sometimes doing what's right for your loved one is the hardest thing to do. Karen is that right thing. Visit caron.org slash lost. In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia.